0: Good evening, little masters, and welcome once again to the Prancing Pony Podcast, where the good stuff has been delayed. You see, we were using the white ships of the Teleri
1: for delivery, and, well, you can thank Feanor for that. I knew there was a reason I didn't like that guy that much. West hall my friends. I'm Sean Marchese, and joining me from the uttermost west, the earth trembles beneath his feet <laughs> when he's not sleeping from <clears throat> weariness and contentment, the topaz to my form, eh, Alan Sisto,
0: thank you, Sean. Though well, you know we are going to run out of cool stuff to say about Tulkas one of these days, so uh, yeah, I hope fun. you have a backup plan. Well, folks, we, <laughs> we are taking a big trip in distance and in time tonight. For the last several episodes, we've been with the uh, the Elves of the Light, the Calaquendi, the Vanyar, the Noldor, and the Teleri—what's left of them, that is—over in Valinor. Uh, tonight we go back in time several centuries, uh, actually a few millennia and back to Middle-earth in Chapter 10 of the Sindar. Or
1: as I like to say, Alan, we're in a gray area. Ooh. You like that? Thank you. Thank you very much. I'll be here all night. Uh, we will get to visit <laughs> Thingol and Melian again. Uh, encounter the dwarves for the first time since their creation by Aule, and we're going to see the first battle in the B- Wars of Beleriand. And Luthien. We mustn't forget Luthien. That's right.
0: Luthien but, uh, T- Yeah. <laughs> we can't forget her. But first, nope. Sean, does, uh, does Barloman have anything in his
1: bag for us tonight? He does. He does. We've uh, We've received more than a few threats from Feanor apologists out there. <laughs> uh, Are they going to burn our ships? Yeah, nothing we have to take too seriously, I don't think. They haven't gotten as far as forging weapons yet. But we also received a really, really amazing essay on uh, one of our little outro jokes. Uh, Do you want to take a flying leap and guess which one it was? Oh, 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 oh. I think you're trying to tell me something,
0: Sean. Flying. Mm. Flying. Hmm. Mm. Could it be the
1: 5,000-word essay we received on whether Balrogs have wings? That's the one, Alan. Woo-hoo. Uh, one of our listeners, Tom H., crafted a wonderfully clever essay of exactly 5,000 words to answer the question. I was amazed about that. That was really good. It was. He, he got it spot on. And I don't want to spoil the surprise, so I'm just going to direct you listening at home to check it out at our website, theprancingponypodcast.com, where we link to the full essay. Mm-hmm. Truly, truly a thing of brilliance. I mean, we're talking Ph.D. dissertation right here. Yeah, it really is, and and exactly 5,000 words, and boy, does he make the point.
0: Yeah, well, you're going to get no argument from me, but that may be because I entirely agree with his conclusion.
1: Um, is there anything else from Barnuman, the thrice worthy and beloved? <laughs> yes, actually. Uh, <laughs> fittingly for tonight's episode, we have a couple of questions about Melian and her ah, family back in Beleriand. So good timing. Yeah, so if you recall, when we last left Thingol and Melian uh, back in episode. Uh, excuse me, back in Chapter Mm 4, we mentioned that they would have a daughter, Luthie and Tanuviel. And so we got some questions back then about uh, their relationship and their daughter. Uh, And both of the questions are sort of in a similar vein. Okay. So the first one comes to us from Tanya P. Tanya is one of our frequent commentators. She's out in New York. And she says, Mm -hmm. here are my musings on your latest episode. I love how your comments, even the ones spoken in jest, get me thinking of something that I wouldn't have considered otherwise. Thank you, Tanya. This time, it was your, Alan, mention of Melian's husband hunting. <laughs> oh, you was going to be like my trophy wife comment, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, right, right. Uh, you believed that she was not husband hunting, but I think that maybe she actually was. Let hmm. me explain. Melian was made aware by Iluvatar of his plan of passing on Ainuran divinity into the races of the earth, and that it was to be accomplished through her union with one of them. For that reason, she was actively seeking this union. The first clue to that lies in her timing of leaving Valinor. She left when the elves awoke, as if on cue. True. The second clue is that she didn't roam Middle-earth randomly, but stayed in the region where the majority of elves were known to be at the time, which was Beleriand. Target-rich environment. Yep. (laughs) Right? Uh, The rest is accomplished through Elway's free will. There is also a third clue that's found later in the book. When she casts the girdle around her kingdom, which we'll see at the end of this chapter... That's true. Melian already knows that sooner or later someone will come whom the girdle will not deter, and that someone will complete the final stage of Eru's plan. Wow, that's really insightful. Isn't it? Yeah. It's that's... a really, really uh well thought out theory. Um as we've I... come to expect from yeah. Tanya, yeah, actually. She's uh she's one of the best at laying out this kind of stuff. Uh-huh. And I, I mean I think she's I think she's right. I think she's, she's got a point. something. Yeah, I mean It was definitely all by Iluvatar's design, um, and it was for the purpose, she said, of bringing among both elves and men a strain of this Ainuran blood um, Mm -hmm. that was with Iluvatar before Ea. Um, We did say as much in that episode, or we alluded to it if we didn't Mm -hmm. say those exact words. Um, And we talked about the fact that what often seems like random chance is usually a sign of Iluvatar's hand at work. Yeah, fate or, you know, oh, wow, huh. Oh, huh, what a coincidence. Yeah, right. There what are I, what a, no coincidences. Handy <laughs> coincidence. Well, no, usually it's Illuvatar's hand. Yep. Um the question really then is just how much Melian actually knew. Mm-hmm. Um Tanya makes an excellent point. She may have known everything and she may have positioned herself to be in the right place at the right time. Mm. Uh, we will see in this chapter tonight that she does have foresight. True. And she sees beyond just the first age. Um, so yeah, maybe she knew exactly what Illuvatar was planning.
0: At a minimum.
1: Yeah, I thought so. I I would say at a minimum, I would think she probably felt a sort of an inexplicable urge to be in Beleriand at the right time, um, you know, so that Elway could wander by. Um, Not to. Well, this is something that you know more about, but, you know, it just it seems to me in um, like in biblical stories and things like that, you know, God's chosen instruments usually sort of feel a call. That they can't True. quite explain. They just sort of, they, they know where they need to be and, and they just, they need to be there, but they don't know why. And I, and I wonder if maybe hmm. there could have been something of that in Melly, and she just kind of felt an urge to be there without knowing exactly why. That's an interesting why. point.
0: And that actually kind of, when you when you bring up that last point, it does make me think that maybe she had some, some conscious awareness because yeah because actually um, in, in most biblical stories, at least the ones that I can think of off the top of my head. Uh, but if you look in the Old Testament, you look at the prophets, you know, God gives them Exact instructions. I mean, where to go, what to do, um, you know, what to wear. I mean, everything. They they lay out all. He lays out all the details, um, and they go do it because God has told them to do it. Mm-hmm. So it's more than just a call. It's usually at least in in the Old Testament stories that I can it's more, of, it, a command, it's it more of a command. It's more a command. Yeah, that's an interesting point because that that little thing that you brought up at the end does make me think that uh, being who she is, being a Maya, yeah, it it actually makes sense she may not have even just been specifically husband hunting she might have been specifically elway hunting even i mean yeah. I, I don't know but i certainly wouldn't be surprised if it was that specific look for this guy melian yeah he's really tall right,
1: <laughs> he's right really exactly. tall.
0: and he likes to go in, he likes to go for long walks alone in the woods that's on his yeah. uh, match.com
1: profile right um, right exactly <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's an intriguing it really intriguing really uh, couple of points raised by Tanya and uh yeah mm-hmm. maybe it, maybe it wasn't pure chance maybe she she really knew what she was doing yeah whereas I think other times where
0: we see aluvatar's hand at work uh the, the people that are being used by aluvatar's hand let's say for example Bilbo finding the ring mm-hmm. um you know where he was essentially manipulated into that and I don't mean manipulated in a negative sense I just mean he certainly wasn't aware a his sure, role yeah.
1: in fulfilling any sort of prophecy. He was a chess piece, a piece on a board. Right, that was, exactly. That was like like right Gandalf place, yeah.
0: says, you're just one small person, one in, the small person in the world after all. One small person in the world after all, yeah. Which is a, one of the best closing lines ever, really. Yeah, yeah. I can't wait till we get to that in about, yeah. you know, four years. But uh, yeah, right. <laughs> actually, it won't be that long. I think we were looking at Maybe our timeline two. on Maybe this. Two. And it's only a year before we're done with
1: this. Yeah. And then it we'll be tackling two years The Hobbit. So the, probably two years. Yeah, because
0: that's only... What is it? How many chapters? Twelve? Something like that. Nineteen. Nineteen. That's right. Twelve. Nineteen. Thirty. Whatever. You know, it's all something. It's all more than two. (laughs) (laughs) I can't count past two these days. Um, Right. But yeah. uh, So, yeah, that'll probably be if it's 19, then it'll be 19 episodes. So it'll probably be two and a half to two and a half years. But so we'll we'll get there. I think we'll actually get there. I think so. You know, it might be, uh, you know, when we talk about things like unfinished tales, that might be a pipe dream that we're still on the air then. But uh, yeah, yeah. I think it's realistic to think we'll get to the end of the Hobbit. At
1: least I think we can make
0: it to the end of the Hobbit. <laughs> um, so yeah, oh, fascinating, man. fascinating insight. And thank you, Tanya. That uh, that really did tie things together. I I have to say, I, th- I think you're probably onto something there. I think so. Um, yeah. Once again, she has corrected me. Yes.
1: She's she's good at that. She's you, astounding at that actually. Getting getting a nice. comment from Tanya is always a, a reason to to stop and think we've we've probably missed something because ah, she's yeah. she knows the man she knows those history of middle oh, earth yeah. texts better Back, than uh, better than me, that's for sure. You, you, better than me for sure. Yeah. So then we have so, something else uh, we have another question along those same lines, right? We did. Uh we got a, another question from Nakat, another, another friend of regular. the show. Yeah. Yep, yeah, she's one of our friends in Lahore, Pakistan. Mhm. She writes in saying the Ainur generally don't have kids, but Melian did. Mm-hmm. She says, granted, Luthien was half and half Ainur and uh, firstborn or Elf, uh, but it does show that the Valar could have children too if they chose. I, I'd probably what do you think to, of that.
0: Well, I'd probably have to disagree with that with the conclusion that she draws from it. Um, you know, she's right to say that Ainur generally don't have kids. We're given two. Examples of Ainur that do. Uh, we already talked about one, and that was uh, uh, Ungoliant, uh, who we came to the conclusion uh, that she was a Maya, assume, right, assuming she is a Maya, yeah, uh, and that and that she was able to reproduce. Um, but like we see with with Melian, she reproduced because she made it with a you know flesh and blood, uh, you know, mortal, yeah. Mortal, I say that when I'm talking about Elway, but I mean different Sure, sure. Different Ter- maybe than,
1: terrestrial or right, incarnate. Right, terrestrial is a good
0: you way. Better. Incarnate. I like that word. We use that a lot, and it's a good one. Um, and that's my take on this, is that Melian was only able to procreate precisely because she married one of the children of Iluvatar. Mm, uh, if she was married to another Maya or, or to a Vala, uh, I honestly don't think offspring would have been possible because we see marriage um, you know, between the Valar, for instance, and presumably also amongst the Maiar— uh, but with, with no offspring, and it would seem weird that it never, ever, ever happens except in these two instances, and both of them share that one commonality. It doesn't. It just yeah. doesn't seem to me that like it was part of Iluvatar's plan to allow the Ainur to reproduce, and the, and I think we got to understand the nature of who, what they are. An Ainu, whether Vala, Vala or Maya, an Ainu is an offspring of Iluvatar's thought. Mm-hmm. So they can't reproduce something that's of Iluvatar's thought. Right. They're they there to subcreate, not they, to procreate. exactly. That's a wow. Yeah. That's a great little distinction, <laughs> but because elves and men were designed to procreate by the by right. Iluvatar himself, uh, Thingol could have kids. So it was more about right. the fact that Thingol could reproduce. And right. So he I was agree. A, even though he married Amaya. Um, yeah. And so that was kind I of the exception it. that proves the rule. Um, Fact, well, and then was... the,
1: what's what's sort of intriguing about that is that once uh, once that that rule had been established, or you know, once uh, once Melian uh, mm-hmm. had procreated with with Thingol, you know, then you get Ungol- Ungoliant, assuming that she's actually a Maya. Sure. Um, you know, is it does the rule now apply to any Ainu that chooses to mate with an incarnate creature? I, I don't know. I mean, I my, my hunch is yes, because the incarnate creature. Was intended by Iluvatar to reproduce. Right. So by virtue of the incarnate creature, that's exactly. why Amaya is able exactly. to reproduce. Though you know, we would have to assume that, uh, with the exception of Melian, only uh, a corrupted Ainu would would choose to do that. Because that's true. Because well, yeah. it would be going against nature.
0: Unless Iluvatar had specifically instructed right. them to, like he did with, like it appears he might have done with Melian. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Interesting.
1: That's a good question. It's very interesting. Good stuff. And, and uh You know, it's it's also worth pointing out. I I, I will point this out really quickly before we move sure, on. Just sure. that uh in the early versions of the Legendarium, if you look at things like the Book of Lost Tales, right. uh the Valar did have children. Yes. Um yes. but uh and, and I'm sure somebody might point that out. Well, the Valar did have children. Well, yes, in that early version, but yeah that's really not considered canon- canonical by the time no. you know we get down to the Silmarillion and, and clearly in the in the finished published Silmarillion the intention was that the Valar did not have children exactly and that's the thing there are a lot of uh,
0: things that show up in the book of lost tales that get changed mm-hmm. and while it's always interesting to look at that as, as a means of you know the, the development of the story uh, when when the published version conflicts with The Book of Lost Tales. Clearly, the published version
1: wins. Always go with the published version. Uh,
0: You know, we can look at, for example, or even just later. Usually, Trump's earlier. Um, I'm thinking of the fact that uh, elves, um, uh, the reincarnation, the reincarnation of elves. Yeah, the reincarnation of elves that went away. Yeah, and eventually became they they become rehoused as adults because that was uh, more consistent with his uh, with his personal beliefs as well.
1: Right. Yeah. So yeah,
0: you just you know. Published, Trump's unpublished, and later Trump's later, earlier. Trump's earlier. Yep, that's yeah, that's a good way of thinking of it. So good, good stuff. And I hope that we have some more questions next time when we get to of Sun and Moon. But uh, tonight, let's just dig into this discussion. I, I thought this was going to be a short chapter when I first looked at it, but the more I looked at it, the longer it's going to be. I don't think we're going to approach <laughs> the two hours of uh, two episodes ago with the first half of Return of the Noldor,
1: I mean, of, um, of The Flight of the Noldor. Mm-hmm. But uh, this won't be a short one. Before we get into the discussion, we want to uh, suggest that you pull up uh, a secondary resource to use as we go through the chapter. So I know some of you are listening on mobile devices, and you might be doing something else. You might not be able to pull up a web page uh, and look at it. Um, if you're driving, please do not do oh, that. Oh, goodness, no, please. <laughs> but um, but if you are at a place where you can pull yeah. up uh, you know, a website a web on a screen, mm-hmm. uh, please do, because this is a geography-heavy chapter. And we think you'll benefit from a good map, and we've found one. Uh, we suggest going to a website called loaderproject.com. That's L-O-T-R, like Lord of the Rings, project.com. Uh, and when you get to their homepage, uh, the first thing you'll see, I think, is the family tree, Right. Mm-hmm. which is which is kind of neat, but uh, we don't want you to worry about right about that right now. Yeah, because it's um, probably
0: going to be more confusing than, than helpful yeah, for the newer yeah. readers. Um, but what you'll want to do actually is click on Maps up at the top mm-hmm. uh, near the upper left, and then after the map of Middle-earth shows up, don't get distracted by that really cool map. You can explore it later when you're not listening to us. Um, you'll use it when we get to Lord of the Rings, of course. But um, click instead on Map of Beleriand. That's over in the upper right-hand corner of the map. So again, L-O-T-R Lotrproject.com. Pause this if you need to pull this up first, um, and then click on Maps at the upper left, and then Map of Beleriand in the upper right. Mm-hmm. Sean and I are going to have this map up on our monitors as we go through this podcast, so we'll be referencing it fairly often, and we'll definitely use it again, even if the only other time we use it is Chapter fourteen, chapter 14 for of sure. Beleriand yep. and its realms. Yep,
1: definitely. Um,
0: and one other thing, we want to give a shout out to um, to the folks who put this together. Uh, it is a site that relies on donations. It's, as you can imagine, when you look at this site and explore it, there was a ton of effort, a ton of love, and a ton of work put into it. So, um, you know, we want to encourage you guys as our listeners to, to throw them a dollar or two, uh, you know, maybe more if you're if you're able to, uh, to just, you know, thank them and, and help them be able to keep this uh, amazing resource online for all yeah. of those Tolkien fans. So now that you have that, and it
1: really is cool. It really is is an amazingly cool, and you'll
0: be able to look at other stuff like timelines and some really cool stats. I mean, it's the the amount of effort they put into this. I I say they. It's pretty much one guy.
1: um, Is is absolutely astounding. But um, yeah, yeah. And we'll we'll put a link up on the website too. Mm -hmm. So uh, so those of you listening to this later can yeah. uh, And on the Facebook page too. Yep.
0: Yep. Uh, okay, well, now that we have that little thing out of the way, let's go ahead and get into the discussion itself. Um, I'm going to start by, well, reading the, the first paragraph. We'll just start right there. Okay. Now, as has been told, the power of Elway and Melian increased in Middle-earth, and all the elves of Beleriand, from the mariners of Cirdan to the wandering hunters of the Blue Mountains beyond the River Gellion, owned Elway as their lord. Elu-Thingal, he was called, King Greymantle, In the tongue of his people. They are called the Sindar, the Grey Elves of Starlit Beleriand, And although they were Moraquendi, under the lordship of Thingal and the teaching of Melian, they became the fairest and the most wise and skillful of all the elves of Middle Earth. So we'll start we'll Hmm. stop there. Uh, We've got a couple of a couple of big points here. We get the lordship of of Elu Thingal, we get the teaching of Melian. Uh, the fact that these this the Sindar are incredibly wise,
1: skillful, and fair. It, it raises them above the the level. the level of enlightenment of all the other Moraquendi. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Especially uh,
0: of the Avari, the ones that mm-hmm. you know had refused the journey earlier. But even the other um, the other Eldar, the ones that had began that journey. Right, um, and it you know has a large part to do with the fact that. They're under the the kingship of Thingol, who has seen the light of Amon. Right, right. And under the and you know the teaching Melian. of Melian, they've got a Maya yep. amongst them. Yep. Yep. So definitely uh, some big things there.
1: Yeah. And, and I think you had a thing about the tying Feanor in here, right? Yeah, well, there's this idea that all the elves of Beleriand owned Elwë or Eluthingal we're about to start calling him as their lord. So remember Feanor's big thing that he, you know, he said in in Flight of the Noldor, but and even before that, about winning great realms back in Middle Earth. Oh yeah. Well, the the elves in Middle Earth already have a lord. Um, they're not looking uh, for uh, a new one. So you know, it's like. Where does going to find? I will ask him if he needs another lord, but I don't think he'd be very keen. He already has one, you see. <laughs> oh man! Uh, I had to get a Python uh, reference you in had there? had to get a Python reference in? Well, <laughs> he already has one. Um, yeah, yeah exactly. you're right. Like, I mean,
0: what's he going to do? I mean, I guess he just...
1: Well, he's gonna not he going to do what he did to the Celery. I mean, <laughs> well, exactly. You're, you know, he's already. He's already struck out at the Teleri once. You know, he's, the only way he's going to win great realms is by taking them from somebody else. Yeah. He doesn't know that yet, but no. we know. That now. And why not? These are more, in the case
0: of Thingol, he's another uh, Teleri. Right. You know, he's the, the brother of the guy who's, ooh, and that's going to play really well when they get back. Yes. But we'll get to yeah, that in he's, a few
1: chapters. Oh, man, when he finds out about that, that's not going to be well. Not a pleasant time. Nope. Um,
0: but one thing that's is interesting is we find out um, in the very next line that this is the end of the first age of the chaining of Melkor. Yeah. So yeah. We, we really kind of need to talk a little bit about timeline. Um, so we see that Luthien's born at the end of the first age of Melkor's imprisonment. Now, this is where we have to pull in some more information, right? We pulled in some stuff from, uh, from Morgoth's ring, specifically from the annals of Amon. We know that... Um, Christopher Tolkien says there that time indeed began with the beginning of Ea, and in that beginning the Valar came into the world. But the measurement which the Valar made of the ages of their labors is not known to any of the children of Iluvatar until the first flowering of Telperion in Valinor. We've talked about that, the -hmm. years of the trees. Mm -hmm. After that point, the Valar counted time by the ages of Valinor. Each age contained a hundred of the years of the Valar. So you would think, oh, an age is only a hundred years except that each of the years of the Valar was almost 10 years. In fact, and I don't know how they came up with this number, but it's like 9.52. <laughs> I don't know. I'm sure there's round, a reason. Is I, I, I'm sure there was something in a footnote about how that was calculated, and I could pull that up at some point, but uh, not right now because I only have that in hard copy. But yeah. um, it, it is 9.52, <laughs> so, or 9.5, It's something like that. It's just you know a little a hair over 9.5. Um and we do get a little bit from that. We actually do start getting a little bit of referencing of time. Um, mm-hmm. We do know that he was sentenced to his imprisonment in the year 4,600, okay. uh, first age. But that's 4,600 Valinorian years. So this is a very long time from the the birth of the trees. And then he was released 300 years later. But that's not 300 of our years. That's almost 3,000. 300
1: Valian yeah. years, yeah, so yeah, three hundred Valinorian years. So, um, so we're talking, you know, we're talking something like forty. I mean, like my math is going to be really rough, but like forty five thousand years, something yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah,
0: forty five thousand years or so between the time of the trees to the time uh, that Melkor was sentenced, and then three hundred years later, or three thousand years later, in terms of our years, when he was released. That is so, mind boggling, isn't it? So she was born in. Um, in 4700, at the end of the the uh, the end of the first age of his imprisonment. Uh, so we know that, and the Valinorian years are measured, by the way, until the year 5000 when the moon rises. Okay. So we saw the moon rise at the very end of last chapter, and we'll get to understand how the moon rose uh, when we get to next chapter. In our chapter. next
1: episode, yeah.
0: But we know that that happened in the year 5000. So she was around for 300 Valinorian years, plus 464 years after that. When she met Baron, so she was thirty-four hundred nineteen years old when wow. she first meets Baron, in about what nine chapters. So, just to get a feel for the vastness of the time, Cradle Robber, Cradle Robber. How did I know that was coming? Um, yeah. But she does look great for her age. <laughs> she does. It. You know what? The elves really developed the first plastic surgery.
1: Nobody knows that. <laughs> Shh! Don't tell anyone. Elvish. Elvish magic. Elvish magic. It's a, it's a fair, It's an elvish art, a fairy art. Oil of Olay. <laughs> Oil of Olay. I almost
0: did a spit take on my microphone, Sean. Thank you very much. Oil of Olay. Oh. Right over the plate. Oh, that was beautiful. That was a beautiful thing. Uh, we're, we might Thank get you. mail on that one. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Uh, so I just had to do that little time <laughs> sidebar to just... Help folks out with uh, just how vast these times are. I mean, this chapter covers an insane amount of time, mm-hmm. thousands yeah. of years uh, between Luthien's it's, birth and—
1: It really you know, is the truly mind-boggling, and it's, what, nine pages? <laughs> I know. This, is, this may
0: actually be the longest chapter aside yeah. from chapter one of the beginning of days where we really right. don't know how right. long that was. But um, anyway, so um, let me go ahead and read that that second half of the paragraph now that we have that in mind. Let's
1: talk about Luthien, yeah.
0: So at the end of the first age with the chaining of Melkor, when all the earth had peace and the glory of Valinor was at its noon, there came into the world Luthien, the only child of Thingol and Melian. Though Middle-earth lay for the most part in the sleep of Yavanna, in Beleriand, under the power of Melian, there was life and joy. And the bright stars shone as silver fires, and there, in the forest of Neldoreth, Luthien was born, and the white flowers of Niffleril came forth to greet her as stars from the earth.
1: I love that image. The Isn't that beautiful? Greet her as stars from the image. As her as stars from the earth. There's it's no like...
0: flowers because everything's in the sleep of
1: Yvanna, but the Niffleril show up. You know. Yeah. And Melian's got some yeah. power. And the idea of stars from the earth—I just love this. Uh, it just reminds me of a, it's a bringing together of the heavens, the stars, uh, and the yeah. earth, and Which, and that's that's Luthien, isn't it? You're because right. It is. She's a creature she's of a, a, angelic or you know Ainu blood and terrestrial blood. Wow. From her father. Wow, that's that's a really cool insight and beautiful yeah, too. it's So cool. That is cool. Um, There's all these little things about it. The way you know, I always feel like Luthien and, and Melian and Thingol—they're so tied to the land they live in. Oh, they really um, are. In a way that you know, we just don't. I mean, it, it's one of those real legendary, kind of mythical things that you see a lot. You know, yeah, maybe in, in Arthurian legend and things like that. But uh, you really see it a lot with them. It's it's really cool. You
0: do. Wow. Well, you know, and there was one other thing, I, we probably should have touched on this earlier uh, because it's geography related, but I
1: yeah. I
0: noted at the beginning of the chapter that all the elves of Beleriand, from the mariners of Círdan to the wandering hunters of the Blue Mountains beyond the River Gellion. So if you're looking at that map, we did have you pull up Loader Project for a reason. Um, the mariners of Círdan were in the phalas. So if you look in the middle of that map of Beleriand, there's Doriath. Now right. look all the way to the west coast and south just a little bit. There's the phalas.
1: It's right, okay. probably right on the edge of your screen if you're on the the default magnification. Yeah,
0: yeah. Uh, and so there it is. There's uh, there's a river that goes there to Eglarest, and then you can kind of see that bay between Phalas and West Beleriand. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that's the area that Cirdan is. And then you have all the way over to Doriath in the middle. River Gellion is the is the north south river all the way to the right, uh, just to the west of uh, of the Ered Lúin.
1: So if you're looking at the map, that's between the, the regions of Estelad and Thargelion.
0: Yes, between East Beleriand or Estelad there and Thargelion. That mm-hmm. north-south river is the river Gellion with all those uh, tributaries in Ossyrian down in the south.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: That's a very important river. It's not as important as Sirion, which is the one that splits Dor- – or goes just to the, uh, to the west of Doriath and splits right. the other forests there. But um, – so that's all of Beleriand. It's a huge realm. Yep. Uh, so, even though we later see that Thingol and Melian will eventually kind of close in Doriath and Neldoreth uh, behind the Girdle, their realm stretches all the way from the coast to the mountains. Yeah. Uh, I and mean, it's a huge realm. It is the entire east to west spance
1: of Beleriand, yeah. really. Yeah.
0: And we don't get a north south here, but um, <laughs> I believe at this point it doesn't, it, its northern line would probably be uh, the Arid Gorgoroth. Uh, and, and perhaps the, the pass there, uh, with, mm-hmm. with Sirion. The pass uh, of, towards, is it the
1: pass of Anach?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, you know, near Tol uh, mm-hmm. on in the, on the west and then up by right. Emmering in the east. So that, that would more likely be the northern border. I don't have any idea how far south. I don't know whether it, uh, whether they commanded stuff all the way down to the Bay of Balar, though we do know that the, uh, um. Uh, the room did end up going there. We'll get to that later. Right, right. So anyway, I just kind of wanted to lay out a little bit of the land. Little, really, uh, really huge realm. It is. It's a big realm. This their, is not a minor control. kingship. That's right. really the point that we're trying to make here. So.
1: Right. Right. <laughs>
0: Well, so what do we get after the most beautiful thing in all of Middle Earth? We get,
1: <laughs> we get the dwarves, <laughs> and they're they're a, they're a stocky and practical people. Um, we haven't seen them since that chapter two. Are. No, actually, no. Um, when they were, uh, if you recall, in chapter two, they were created by Oley. Uh, got his hand slapped by Iluvatar a little bit, and Iluvatar <laughs> put them to sleep. Um, yes. But now we actually get them appearing, and I, I'd like to go ahead and read uh, yeah. from that first paragraph Please do. there. Please do. Themselves they named Khazad, but the Sindar called them Naugrim, the stunted people, and gon masters of stone. Far to the east were the most ancient dwellings of the Naugrim, but they had delved for themselves great halls and mansions, after the manner of their kind, in the eastern side of Eridluin. And those cities were named in their own tongue Gabilgothal and Tumunzahar. To the north of the great height of Mount Dolmed was Gabilgothal, which the elves interpreted in their tongue Belagost, that is Mickelberg. And southward was delved Tumunzahar by the elves named Nogrod, the hollowbold. Greatest of all the mansions of the dwarves was Khazadum, the dwarrodelf, hathadhram in the Elvish tongue. That was afterwards, in the days of its darkness, called Moria. But it was far off in the mountains of mist beyond the wide leagues of Eriador. And to the Eldar came, but as a name and a rumor, from the words of the dwarves of the Blue Mountains.
0: And that's that's actually way off the map, because to yep. place this in context, the arid Luin uh, are the mountains that, if you were looking at a map of Middle-earth, uh, are on the far western shore. These are the, the ones r- that are to the right. west of the Shire. Um, right, right. So yeah, yeah. So this is Moria is way to the east and to the south uh, of of this realm,
1: and that's why the elves of Beleriand are not having any kind of concourse with the dwarves of Moria. But they oh, are no. hearing about them, yeah, uh, from the from these dwarves uh, of the Blue Mountains, the Arid Lúin, mm-hmm. uh, in Bela Ghost and Nogrod. Yeah, I think yeah. it's interesting. I think it's interesting that we don't see the dwarves awake. That's we just what I was see them say. start to appear. Yeah, they uh, just show up. Yeah. But I think that's that's you know
0: really easily explained by the fact that what we're reading is an elvish history. It's written yep, by true. the elves about the okay. elves primarily. Um, you know we don't we don't even get uh, definitive answers about men's origin. Um, that's true. Yeah. Basically, if the, elves, the elves don't, don't know, yeah, yeah, if the elves don't know, it's not in here. <laughs> right. Um, it, it's uh, you know, and that's something we have to remember: is the the fictional framework or the, you know the the structure in which his stories fit. In this case, this is an Elvish tale. Um, I'm sure that the man's version of the Silmarillion would be quite different. Yeah. Um,
1: Certainly the dwarves. It's sometimes frustrating as a human reader to to want to know. It is. You want to know what the origin is of men in this world. Maybe what the origin of dwarves or origin of other things. But uh, it is a... You know, who might consider it an in-universe document. You know, it's, exactly. it's the elves' own perspective. It's a limited perspective document. It, that's a good way to put it. A limited
0: perspective, and you know, it makes me also think of the fact that we don't know. You know, we the elves talk about what what they know about their their death. We know everything about their death. The, you know, the fact that they get rehoused and the fact that they live as long as Arda does, and all of that. Right. Uh, that they're bound to the circles of the world. They don't know what happens to men. And they don't know what happens to dwarves. We get a couple of Tolkien's famous, some say, statements. Right. That's true. Yeah. Um, But that's really all we get. And again, it's because it's an elvish elvish story. Right. Um, Right.
1: Now, I noticed- we do Go get ahead. some cool, we do get some cool dwar, uh, dwarvish language here, which are like. Hey, before we get into that, because I know we've got a ton of stuff on dwarvish language,
0: I just wanted mm-hmm. to point out the ticking clock that we talk about. Uh, oh, yeah, just yeah. before the passage you read, we learned that this came to pass during the second age of the captivity of Melkor. So now, oh, we're thank you. Yeah. A hundred Valinorian years, or nine hundred eighty-two years um, into the future from the birth of uh, of Luthien. Okay. So, or we're yeah. somewhere in that range. We're somewhere between birth of Luth- Luthian and 982 years later when the Second Age of Captivity
1: would end. Got it. Got it. Yeah, that's a good perspective.
0: Cool. So you've got well, some Dwarvy Dwarvish yeah, got... word nerd stuff, right? Oh yeah. Well, Can't you know me. When I see a
1: whole bunch of weird words that are hard to pronounce, I'm going to I'm going to spend a lot of time <laughs> looking into it. So the first thing we get here is the dwarves name for themselves, uh, which is Khazad Right. Uh, And remember that Owlay actually taught the dwarves their own language, right, Mm -hmm. back in Chapter 2. And I'm sure Uh, their
0: name for themselves does not mean the stunted people.
1: It probably does not. My
0: goodness, the elves lack tact, don't they? (laughs) They they really do. And Gonhirim just sounds like it's some sort of horrible disease. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Is there an antibiotic
1: for that? Oh man. That's hey. wow, I never thought about that, but I'm not I'm never gonna forget that now. <laughs> the gun hear him. I got the gun here. Oh man. Oh man. Um Yeah, yeah. I'm gonna be in trouble for but, this one. But so i <laughs> let me reel it back in.
0: I'm going to have to pause the recording, aren't I? We're just going to laugh too hard. Okay. Yep. You know, on, on a word nerd alert, let's actually point out that Gunhirim, I this is probably the only word nerd part I'm going to get, so I'm going to jump in on it. Um, remember how we talked about Gondor, and we talked about doors before, door being kingdom or realm. So yep. Gondor is the realm of stone, and, you know, you get other other doors. Um, so Gon, so you already know that Gon is stone, and Hirim, right. Hirim, you we already know Ro, the Rohirrim. Which are the right, horse masters? True, the,
1: the Masters of horses. Yeah. So
0: you don't need to already. You don't need to know. Tolkien doesn't need to tell you here that this is masters of stone. You already know that Rohirrim are the horse masters, and that Gondor is the the
1: kingdom of stone. So Rohirrim yeah, right. is the masters of stone. Masters of stone. Yeah. Yeah. So you see, the the language works. It's it's it. Uh, the the rules uh, the rules are followed throughout. Indeed, they are. Well, and the cool thing about this word Khazad, which is the dwarves' name for themselves, mm-hmm. is that if you've read Lord of the Rings, you've already seen this word. Uh, oh, Gimli's yes. battle cry that he uh, that he cries out at, at the Battle of Helm's Deep in Two Towers uh, is Baruk Khazad, Khazad Aymenu, uh, mm-hmm. which means the axes of the dwarves, the dwarves are upon you. Aha. So now there's that translated. If, uh, and Khazad Doom, right?
0: And a Doom, that's yeah, true. Yeah. yeah. But,
1: which is the, which we'll see in a moment, uh, is translated. Well, actually, we just saw It's translated yeah. as Duaro Delve, which is one of one of Tolkien's not so helpful translations. Yeah, actually. exactly. That's like talking about the hill. Right, right. <laughs> exactly. Uh, isn't that ma- just
0: like dwarf city or something like that?
1: Uh, it's dwarf, uh, dwarf, delving. dwarf delving. Dwarf delving. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Dwarfs yeah. dug this hole. That's what it means. <laughs> right, right, exactly. <laughs> Dwarves were here. And maybe it's worth a, a quick uh, look back at the map real quick. Yeah, and, absolutely. And the geography of this is important. So we look first at
0: um, – so look over towards the River Gellion where we were talking earlier. And you'll see that about halfway down the Arid Luin, just to the east of that, is Mount Dolmed sticking out a little bit to the west. Mm-hmm. Um, it, just above all the um, the tributaries to the Osirian – or, I mean, to the Gellion in know To the Gellion, and the, Yeah. So if you look just to the other side of the Arid Luin, you can see there Belagost to the north and Nagrad to the south, and you can mm-hmm. see a dotted road, a dotted path leading along the river there. That's the Dwarf Road.
1: The Dwarf Road, fittingly that, named.
0: That then goes to the the uh, the ford of the the river there at Sarnathrod. Yeah. Um, so from there they would then you know travel through Beleriand to Doriath, or perhaps all the way wherever they needed to go. Um, mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, though I would imagine it was pretty much to Doriath because now I'm looking at. I mean, certainly to the south of Doriath, they wouldn't have wanted to go. Uh, the Fens of Syrian would have made it hard for them to pass through there. They would have had to go all the way down uh, around that mountain range uh, and go over Syrian to the south if they wanted to get into West right. and Like yeah. to get to Nargothrond or anything like that. Right. Um, we know they didn't really go any further. They didn't go to the to Falas. The they they didn't like the water. So.
1: No, but they we'll did get, not. We'll like get to some see... more of that. Yeah. So... um. I want to take a, yeah. a, another moment on uh, on some of these names just because yeah, I was about really to ask cool you to do that names. my my word nerd friend please do yes please uh, thank you um so this just a couple of just these names here so the first one the the northern fortress uh called Belagost, which in dwarvish is Gabilgathol um very strong powerful name there um and it's translated as Mickelberg which <laughs> yeah I didn't quite it's, it's not really all that helpful if you're not a philologist um Tolkien did this a lot. Uh, Mickleberg is actually English, technically. It's just Tolkien often uh, would create new modern English words from Old English or Middle English roots that don't really exist anymore in modern oh, English. okay. And so Mikkelberg is one of these. It actually translates to uh, Mighty Fortress, which oh, is we go. pretty much a direct translation of Belagost. Yeah, um, yeah. And, uh, and then we've got in the south, uh, Temunzahar, also known as uh, to the elves as Nogrod. Um, and it's translated as hollow bold. Um, hollow bold actually, I, I looked this up, and it hollowbold is actually a little literal translation of Tumunzahar, But Nogrod actually means something different. Nogrod hmm. means dwarf cave. Oh, okay. Again, the, the elves not being too tactical. Nog like Naugrim. like, Nalgrim, like Nalgrim. Right, okay. right. Nog, like Nogrim. That's the. I think that's the. And Finrod. Cinder, Cinder and Lidl- former. Ca- was cave. Yeah, yeah, that's, no, that's right. Fellagund. Fellagund is the cave. Though. Oh right, Fellagund is Lord uh, of, of caves. Hewer of caves. Uh, yeah. Or, yeah. Yeah. But I think it is related to Elrond which is uh like a star vault, like vaulted a vault, chamber, a vaulted ceiling, chamber, chamber chamber with a vaulted ceiling of okay. stars. Yeah. Interesting. Rond vaulted ceiling is related to uh to cave and we actually see Rond again in uh the elvish name of Casarond.
0: You're right. right. Ha- and how
1: Yeah, Rond being chamber with a vaulted roof and then yeah. Atha just being uh, uh, it's not actually a translation it's just a uh Sort of a, an elvish attempt at pronouncing the word Khazad. Oh, okay. So more of a transliteration than, a, than yeah, a translation. Yeah. Gotcha. Exactly. Okay. And then, of course, later on, known as Moria, which means Black Chasm. But, uh, but that doesn't happen until later after the, uh, the great <coughs> wing, wingless darkness is discovered. <laughs> uh, I knew you had to get that in there. Had to. Um,
0: very cool. Very cool. Well, you know, and then uh, we, we talk a little bit about um, uh, khazad Doom, and, you know, that the elves of Eregion uh, in that region uh, mm-hmm. would later be friends with the dwarves of khazad Doom. That's you know, true. We, we yeah. look at the Holland Gate. Uh, Celebrimbor, who is um, uh, a grandson of Feanor through mm-hmm. K- Kurath there or Kurufin? I can't remember off the top of my head. Uh, it's he's, Curufin, yeah. Curufin, yeah. He's the son of Curufin. renounces Curufin's actions later on. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, he's the guy who forges the elvish rings. Right. Uh, and also is the one who is mentioned by name in the... Um, in the inscription on the, the gate. inscription on the gate. Right. So, but at this point, remember, those are different. Those are different elves. Those aren't the same elves. And that's way into the second age.
1: Right. Um,
0: so the these Sindar are not necessarily... They're not dealing with uh, the elves of uh, – the dwarves of Casa Doom. Right, right. Because um,
1: they're just not there. – they're not going that far east. No.
0: No, they're not. Um, well, let me take, a, take um, a little passage here on how the elves kind of deal with the dwarves, kind of their thoughts about the dwarves.
1: Mm-hmm. Though
0: I think we can already assume some of those thoughts based on we what they We probably know a little bit about how they how they felt stunted about people the stunted and, people. <laughs> and gone here. <laughs> <clears throat> <laughs> So um, I'm going to take a little bit down this um, this paragraph here uh, from Naugrad and Belagost. I'm going to go down about halfway down or two-thirds of the way down. <laughs> Ever cool was the friendship between the Naugrim and the Eldar, though much profit they had one of the other. But at that time, those griefs that lay between them had not yet come to pass, and King Thingol welcomed them. But the Naugrim gave their friendship more readily to the Noldor in after days than to any others of elves and men because of their love and reverence for Auley. And the gems of the Noldor, they praised above all other wealth. Well, we just talked a little bit about that, actually, because Celebrimbor, of course, would have been a Noldor.
1: Right.
0: Um, but, yeah, the, um, they're, they're friends with, um, uh, friends with uh, the Noldor because of, of Aulai. But let me handle the rest of the paragraph. Sorry, I, should have, I got distracted there. Yeah. So, in the darkness of Arda already, the dwarves wrought great works. For even from the first days of their fathers, they had marvelous skill with metals and with stone. But in that ancient time, iron and copper they loved to work, rather than silver or gold.
1: Very practical critters, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, very much so. I mean, we we talked about this a little bit uh, a couple of ep- episodes ago, I think, mm-hmm. uh, with Morgoth's Iron Crown. Yeah, just, I think, last um, episode, I think. Yeah, you know, maybe so. Maybe
0: the other one, you're right. Maybe I the one
1: remember. before that. Um, uh, but we just talked about how iron is, you know, a utilitarian metal, practical, yes. not beautiful. Now, I'm not trying to draw a comparison between the dwarves and Morgoth here, no. but but certainly between the dwarves and practicality. You know, they're yeah. they're not fancy, they're not uh, they're no. not ornamental. They're, they're no
0: silver or gold, clearly
1: decorative metals. You're not mm-hmm. going to make a.
0: They're far too soft to use in weapons or armor. Yep. um, well, so is copper for that matter, but coppers. Uh, you know, plentiful, and you can use it for, you know, cooking and and things along those lines, not to mention electricity, which they, I'm sure the dwarves had already invented by now. Oh, for sure. Uh, yeah. <laughs>
1: sure, sure they're, they're probably uh, electroplating all, that, uh, all, their, <laughs> all their mail. Uh,
0: but yeah, so it's, you know, they're, they're looking
1: at, at practical uses of metal mm-hmm. at this point. Yeah, certainly. Uh, in stone. And that's uh, the dwarves all over. They're just, like you said, they're a, a practical people, tough. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, then we get to the construction of Menegroth, don't we?
0: Well, there are a couple other things I think we wanted to mention about. Well, at least one other thing we wanted to mention about uh, this passage is – or about something we didn't read, but it was earlier about the um, – uh, they could understand no word of the tongue of the Naugrim, which to their oh, right. ears was cumbrous and unlovely. Oh, That's right. Yeah. I thought I, that was interesting that they – you know, the dwarves were quick to learn uh, mm-hmm. and they were willing to learn uh, the, the elven tongue, but they weren't so willing to teach their own. Um, no, and, and that was okay with the elves because they didn't want to. it was ugly. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, <right>. really.
1: <laughs> well, you know what's cool about that is uh, one, you know the one book that I know both of us have read recently is uh, the new edition of a Secret Vice. Yes, that was edited by uh, Dimitra Femi and uh, Andrew Higgins. Yes. Um, and one of the the like the new things that they unearthed um, in publishing that volume was uh, Tolkien's uh, essay on phonetic symbolism. Which uh, has a ton of cool stuff in it. But one of the things that's mentioned in that essay is this idea of phonetic predilection. Uh, and it's basically Say the that idea again? phonetic predilection. It's, okay. it's basically a, a, a predilection for certain kinds of phonetic sounds. Uh, and it's basically the idea that uh, certain people, uh, whether it's individuals or groups, races, and so forth, have a preference for certain kinds of sounds. And the phonology, of a language is like inextricably tied to the people who speak it. Um so you know there's a reason that English sounds okay. like English because people who natively speak English just have a predilection for English sounding sounds. Fascinating. Um, you know, and the same with uh, any other Germanic language or uh you know Japanese the the uh, people of Japan, you know, They just have a predilection for certain kinds of sounds just because of where they live. Um, Hmm. It's an interesting theory. Um, I don't think it's a theory that Tolkien totally, uh, you know, applied his entire life. But uh, it's really interesting here because uh, I think that's sort of at play here. Because, you know, you you get the idea that the elves are a beautiful, elegant people. And they speak a beautiful, elegant language. And the dwarves are kind of cumbrous and unwieldy unlovely people um, and uh, and their language is similar and so the elves mm. just the elves just can't get their mouths around this this language of the dwarves this
0: language that's filled with consonants and really hard <laughs> sounds and yeah yeah that's interesting hard sounds like Khazad, you know chazad. like that that's true because we got to remember it's not Khazad, it's Khazad. it's that right. that back of your throat uh, almost like a German ch Mm-hmm. Um I forget what they call that. There, yeah. There's
1: a there's a word for that kind of consonant, and I'm yeah. not gonna guess because I'm gonna I can't remember. make myself sound silly. But yeah, somebody knows it. I'm um, sure they do. <laughs> but uh, but it's just a really cool thing, and I think just because I, I recently read that, I, uh, I I was thinking of that. But uh, yeah. that is interesting. Yeah, I've
0: been reading that that uh, that edition of A Secret Vice, and it is it is
1: challenging to get through, not being as much of a word nerd as you are. But it's uh, definitely worth the read. Yeah, it really is. I highly recommend it to anybody out there. Uh, if you're in the U.S., you might have to get a U.K. Uh, edition because I, I don't I think, think it's, it's available here, isn't it? Is it available here now? I'll
0: I got mine if, from the if, U.K. Yeah, I ordered mine from the U.K. because I wanted to first, you know, I wanted to get it when it first came out. I wanted yeah, to get the first here.
1: edition, but I'm fairly sure it is available. Maybe it's out in the U.S. now. Uh, we'll
0: find out, and we'll put it in our. We'll put a link in our library for you.
1: Yeah.
0: Okay. Yeah. Uh, one cool. way or the other. So it may be a U.K. link, but, you know, if you're here in the U.S., you can get that. You just have to pay a little bit more for shipping. Yeah, there you go. So anyway, very interesting. Um, You were talking about the fact that they're ready to adapt— other languages the dwarves are, but not to teach their
1: own. You, you talked about that in terms of culture, I think, right? Yeah, uh, because, well, you know, every detail about language is significant in sure. Tolkien's work. And so by saying that the dwarves are ready to adapt uh, or, or adopt, I guess I should say, uh, mm-hmm. the language of the elves rather than teach their own language to the elves, um, that's really a way of saying that they're protective of their own culture. You know, well, they don't okay. want to share Absolutely. their language okay. and culture with the elves. They they would rather assimilate to the culture of the people, you know, around them, um, which is just a very interesting thing. Um, you know, this this idea of a sort of a wandering, protective people, um, it's reminiscent of some cultures in our own world. I, the, the word that pops into my mind is they, they seem kind of like a culture in diaspora, you mm-hmm. know, um, Absolutely. kind of like – Kind of like maybe even the – I don't know. I don't know if Tolkien had really based them on um, either the Jews or the Romani or anything like that. But there's definitely some of those that you see pop up throughout medieval literature that, uh, yeah. that the dwarves are sort of reminiscent of.
0: Oh, definitely. Well, and you know what? They are actually – I was thinking about that, um, that. I was reading recently. It was um, an interview. I was, I was reading something about uh, the fact that Tolkien based the dwarves at least in part on uh, the Jewish culture. Uh, and in a in an interview with the BBC, he said that he didn't intend it. So it clearly wasn't something that he you know chose to do at the beginning. He said, "But when you've got these people on your hands, you've got to make them different, haven't you?" And this is I'm quoting Tolkien here. The dwarves, of course, are quite obviously. Wouldn't you say that in many ways they remind you of the Jews? Their words are Semitic, obviously constructed to be Semitic. The hobbits mm-hmm. are just rustic English people. Uh, so he he even recognized that there was some some tie in there. And then um, okay. Uh, John Ratliff, the, uh, author of the history of the Hobbit in, in that volume talked about how Tolkien drew inspiration, uh, from Hebrew texts and Jewish history in developing the dwarves. But that makes sense, especially okay. if you think about it from the, from the perspective of the Hobbit, maybe not so much here, but, um, I mean, once he created the dwarves, the dwarves were created, um, but Thorin's people specifically, you know, they remember their past with these, their tragic past with mournful songs.
1: Mm-hmm. They
0: are craftsmen exiled from a, a, a wonderful homeland. They have no home. Right. Uh, and keep in mind that when Tolkien wrote uh, The Hobbit, uh, the Jews didn't have a home. Israel did not exist as a state. That's uh, true, yeah. Uh, that's and that's, that, yeah. So they were definitely this kind of, like you said, um, dias- um, diaspora, uh, you know, the uh, people kind of spread out in, in mm-hmm. various cultures. So they'd, assimilated into different cultures, but all had their their common language and their common culture uh, that they kind of kept to themselves in in some respects.
1: Yeah, um, that's really cool. Yeah. yeah I've, it, it is certainly, fascinating. It certainly is. uh there's certainly elements of that. I mean, you yeah. know, obviously, we're not saying that you no, know there's the, certainly not an allegory or anything like that. The dwarves are not
0: the Jews. The Jews right, are not the exactly. dwarves. This isn't a one to one allegory.
1: Exactly. But, but you but know, Tolkien, interesting. a lot of influences went into the soup. Well, and, yeah, uh, yeah, and certainly and, there are some real-world historical influences. And I that, think he
0: wanted to make them good because it, yes. it, uh, there's a there's a there's two things that go into this. Of course, one is his Christian background, and Christianity is often viewed um, in recent history. I mean, obviously, if you go back to you know middle medieval ages, uh, medieval times, uh, Christianity there was a lot uh, of
1: anti-Semitism. There was and, anti-Semitism and, yeah, certainly, yeah. but.
0: Uh, you know, in more modern times, Christianity is viewed as an, as an ally of Judaism um, right. for, for obvious theological reasons. Um, but uh, there's that. There's the fact that he would have viewed himself as being kind of on the same side. But there's also the fact that he really despised Wagner and he mm-hmm. despised Hitler <laughs> big right. time. And he and, and Wagner, I, I mentioned Wagner because in his rings uh, or in his ring, um the, the dwarf was this stereotypical representation of a Jew, and he was a bad guy. Right. Uh, and I think, you know, Tolkien wanted to have the you know, heroic dwarves that represented uh, this, this kind of idea of, uh, yeah. of the Jews.
1: Yeah, I think you're um, right.
0: You know, he definitely wanted to rescue that because I loved – and I, I don't have the quote in front of me, but he at one point was answering something from Germany – uh, and he talked about how I guess they they inquired about a German translation, and I, I think they made it sound like you know we want to make sure you don't have any Jewish background. And uh, oh wow! And, and yeah, I, I really wish I could pull this. Quote oh, up. I do remember. And that he letter. said basically, you know, I don't have any of those esteemed, you know, I don't have any of that, that like esteemed race in my background. Did, I, yeah, because they're wonderful. Because they're people. wonderful, yeah. and you guys yeah. are horrible for you know. <laughs> right. It was clear he was that. getting a dig in. Um, yeah, you know, he he absolutely despised. Uh, that anti-Semitism. So, you yep. know, if, uh, if they are, if the dwarves are based, or to the extent that the dwarves are based on uh, on the Jews, it's not meant to be a negative thing at all. Right. Um, but uh, yeah, even the, it is. It's that. interesting. And I remember reading someplace else. This is interesting. Again, really reach. I would never say that this is the case, but it was interesting to see somebody talk about that the Ark and Stone represented the Ark of the Covenant and that the Lonely Mountain represents Temple Mount. <laughs> oh wow uh, that probably is a stretch too far but it's an that's interesting thought probably getting a little
1: too allegorical just but, a little yeah. bit
0: but anyway yeah. it certainly shows that uh there are folks who certainly, see certainly that some connection. similarities mm-hmm. yeah yeah
1: yeah very cool yeah mm-hmm. well it certainly feels right so definitely cool. well, well i think uh that's probably going to bring us to uh to menegroth isn't it i think
0: so um i'm trying to take a look here yeah definitely um Let's see. So I think I'm going to have you read the paragraph that
1: starts out with Now Melian Had Much Foresight. Okay. Now Melian had much foresight after the manner of the Maiar. And when the second age of the captivity of Melkor had passed, she counseled Thingol that the peace of Arda would not last forever. He took thought, therefore, how he should make for himself a kingly dwelling and a place that should be strong if evil were to awake again in Middle-earth. Hmm. And he sought aid and counsel of the dwarves of Belagost. They gave it willingly, for they were unwearied in those days and eager for new works. And though the dwarves ever demanded a price for all that they did, whether with delight or with toil, at this time they held themselves paid, for Melian taught them much that they were eager to learn, and Thingol rewarded them with many fair pearls. These Círdan gave to him, for they were got in great number in the shallow waters about the Isle of Balar. But the Nalgrim had not before seen their like, and they held them dear. One there was as great as a dove's egg, and its sheen was as starlight on the foam of the sea. Nymphilos it was named, and the chieftain of the dwarves of Belagost pried, prized it above a mountain of wealth. Beautiful. hmm
0: And you know, I don't think we actually hear of Nymphilos again. I, I looked I in the—I in, searched my electronic copy, and I,
1: it only shows up in the index. So. I don't think we do hear about it again, and I would just throw out there that I don't think it's the Arkenstone.
0: <laughs> we have just to say that about every, like, roughly hand-sized gem. Every single that's gem reference that's... to
1: the dwarves. Uh, again, no, no. Uh, you know, the Arkenstone is faceted, and I you don't can't think— can't facet you, a pearl. I don't think you can no, facet a you pearl.
0: cannot facet a pearl. Uh, my goodness, that— <laughs> I never even thought yeah. about uh, Nymphalos being the uh, Arkenstone, but I guess <laughs> I don't know. I just I, I feel like I got to get it out there. Just you do. We keep on. Yeah, people always want to think something. Well, that
1: maybe that's the Arkenstone. Right, right. So where are we on the timeline here? Since you've oh, got the timeline. Handy.
0: Well, we are. Oh, we're probably pushing uh, around fifty minutes. Oh, oh, that timeline. <laughs>
1: <laughs> the timeline
0: in Middle Earth. Sorry. Of course, we are almost a thousand years. After the end of the first age, we're at, we're now after the second age, right? So this is yeah. when the second age of the captivity of Melkor. So this is a thousand years after the end of the first age. Okay. The, so Luthien's a thousand years old, and they're wondering when she's going to get out. She's like the the worst millennial in the world. She's a thousand years old and still hasn't left home. Move out of the basement. Get out of the house. Go live on your own.
1: No. Actually, they're I'm about to make totally the whole house to the basement.
0: Yes, they are. <laughs> well done. Um, I also thought it was interesting. Thingol sought the Council of the Dwarves, and he accepted mm-hmm. the Council of Melian. Fanor, take note.
1: Hey, how about Council, some counsel? Counsel's oh, wow. a good thing. Tulkas, you counsel. might want
0: to stay out of the conversation <laughs> since you're no good at counsel. Yeah. Um,
1: take
0: some
1: counsel with someone besides yourself. And maybe and, and, and your everybody. sons who are
0: just your seven yes-men.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, anyway, I just thought that was interesting. I also thought it was really cool to see that the dwarves, who are known for being, at least, you know, in our in, in most of the book, uh, most of the works, are known for being rather demanding in terms of gold. Mm-hmm. They gave their counsel willingly. They gave mm-hmm. their aid willingly. And they considered themselves paid. Yeah. Now, yeah, okay, Thingol rewarded them with pearls, so they did have some material stuff. But I thought this was interesting, and I just wish I could be a fly on the wall. Melian taught them much taught that they were much. eager to learn.
1: What I know. Did, what could what Melian do think have it taught was? dwarves? I know. I wonder. It, it, how it's... to braid a, a lady's beard? I How did to... Well, it... obviously, yes, that. Because, uh, you know. I don't know. I mean, what could <laughs>
0: Melian have possibly taught the dwarves that they would have felt useful?
1: I now have an image in my head that <laughs> Melian looks like the dwarven image of female beauty. <laughs> she's got this flowing beard. Oh, no. And she's a Maya. She's a Maya. She, she's she can, a... Put herself got, in whatever raiment she wants. She's oh, got that's a, a good point.
0: So she pardons herself from, from Thingol's presence and says, excuse me, while I put on yeah. my beard. <laughs> yeah. No, yeah, no, exactly. no. I, it, but I do wonder, what could she have taught them? You I know, wonder. Are, were, were the dwarves possibly interested in anything regarding the history of uh, of Valinor? Could it be. Might, maybe. Maybe did, she might have been able she... to teach some stuff about Owlette.
1: I was just thinking that maybe she taught yeah. them a little bit about Aley. They, yeah. they learned a little bit that about their nature that way. That would be cool. What yeah. else could I mean? Really, what would
0: Melian have known that the dwarves would find useful? I love that. I love. Let's it. see.
1: Melian had uh, in in Aman. She had hung out in uh, in Estes and and Lorian's gardens. Right. 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 So that's not really dwarvish in no. like, compassion and
0: and all of that. I, anyway, I just find that fascinating, and I it really is. wish I knew what it was that she taught them.
1: I know. It's fascinating yeah. stuff.
0: Um, and then going back to the map, let's go take a look at the uh, Lothar Project map. So we've got Doriath there in the middle. Um, we find out that the pearls were, were gotten in great number in the shallow waters about the Isle of Balar. That is all the way to the southwest in the map. So if you look to the immediate west of Doriath, you see uh, River Syrian running through, splitting the forest of Brethel and Neldoreth. Then it mm-hmm. goes through the mountain range, uh, comes out, and goes all the way down to the mouths of Syrian, into the Bay of Balar. And there, to the southwest of the of the bay, is the Isle of Balar.
1: Okay. Now, so, if, we, so we know the Falathrum, were, we're sailing at least to the Isle of Balar. Quite a ways, because the Falas yeah. is— Is way uh, up to north, the northwest there. Way up to the
0: northwest. Probably a good mm-hmm. three 400 miles, uh, based on what mm-hmm. we know later in terms of—, of Oh, her, yeah. Good um, point, yeah. Uh, the distances. Yeah. Being. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Remember the Isle of Balar showed up earlier. That's the last, that's the piece of the island that broke off. Right. And Ulmo carried the elves over to, um, uh,
1: to, uh, to Amman. To Aman on Tolaresia. So that's like the, that's like a little piece of Tolaresia that, yeah. uh, that yeah, got the, left in the, the bay. The, yeah. the
0: root of the island uh, stayed yep. there. Yeah. So, you know, really that that's where the, the, the pearls came from. Uh, yeah. I just thought that was interesting. And then also the description of Menagroth itself in terms of its uh, location. We're going to read this. Um, let's start with just like one sentence into the next paragraph. So, uh, and I'll, I'll stop as I'm reading to kind of point things out. So, where the Escalduin flowed down and parted Neldoreth from Region. So, that you'd have to zoom in on the map, but it's such a great map. You can zoom in so easily. So, the Escalduin is the river that runs. At least in Doriath it runs east west, but it comes from the north. So it goes it comes north south Comes Menegroth, down from
1: like the Arid the
0: Gorgoroth. Comes It comes down into the forest <laughs> and then uh makes that that I guess right hand turn as it as it's coming, it makes mm-hmm, a turn mm-hmm. to the west uh at Menegroth and goes to um uh to the, to the, to the Syrian. Syrian. Yeah. So where the Escaldwin flowed down and parted Neldoreth from Region. So now you've got two forests. You've got The forest of Regiön, which is to the south and east, and the Mm -hmm. forest of Neldrath, which is in the northwest there. So where that river happened, uh, there rose in the midst of the forest a rocky hill, and the river ran at its feet. There they made the gates of the hall of Thingol, and they built a bridge of stone over the river, by which alone the gates could be entered. Beyond the gates, wide passages ran down to high halls and chambers far below that were hewn in the living stone, so many and so great, that the dwelling was named Menegroth, the Thousand Caves. But the elves also had part in that labor, and elves and dwarves together, each with their own skill, there wrought out the visions of Melian, images of the wonder and beauty of Valinor beyond the sea. The pillars of Menegroth were hewn in the likeness of the beeches of Orome, stock, bow, and leaf, and they were lit with lanterns of gold, I'm sorry, stock, bow, and leaf. I can't read tonight. <laughs> and they were lit with lanterns of gold. The nightingales, keep in mind, that's what um, Luthien Tinuviel. you know, we, we, we know that nightingales are associated with, uh, I'm sorry, with her mom, with Melian. Mm-hmm. So the nightingales sang there as in the gardens of Lorien, and there were fountains of silver and basins of marble and floors of many colored stone. Carven figures of beasts and birds there ran upon the walls or climbed upon the pillars or peered among the branches entwined with many flowers. And as the years passed, Melian and her maidens filled the halls with woven hangings, wherein could be read the deeds of the Valar, and many things that had befallen in Arda since its beginning, and shadows of things that were yet to be. That was the fairest dwelling of any king that has ever been east of the sea." Wow. What a place.
1: It certainly sounds like the fairest dwelling. Posters I mean, on the wall that predict the future. <clears throat> mhm. Pretty cool. Yeah.
0: Um Yeah,
1: that's amazing.
0: No, truly just beautiful. I mean, it really the idea is. of these just the the, the the
1: pillars hewn to look like trees. Um It really is like a mini Valinor, like just the 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 yeah, an the underground beauty of Yeah. Yeah, right. nightingales, <laughs> silver fountains, marble
0: basins—oh, yeah, uh, so amazing. much detail. And I love that the entire history of the Valar w- was there. Mm-hmm. And I love that this is actually defined the fairest dwelling of any king that has ever been east of the sea.
1: Yeah, there's no. This is fairer this is than better. A, that's fairer yeah. than Gondolin. Yeah, uh, fairer yeah. than anything you know to come later.
0: Uh, right, Rivendell. Right, um, you know, uh,
1: Lothlorien. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. certainly fairer than you know any of the the Manish uh, kingdoms, Minas Tirith, or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Any of the capitals. <clears throat> wow, it's just beautiful. I and, can't even imagine. And unsurprisingly, it was made by harmony between races, wasn't That's it? That's exactly the point. Elves mm-hmm.
0: and dwarves together. Well, and even an uh. A- and a- with the a force
1: of melian So yeah, it's a harmony between, elf and dwarf and Maya which really never happened
0: again. Um, true, but wow. Yeah, absolutely. Once again, teamwork, teamwork does it. Um, generosity, seeking of the counsel. It is, this is all go team. Mm-hmm. Yeah, great stuff, but it doesn't last. I mean, it does last, but we, we find some disturbing news, uh, shortly thereafter, don't we?
1: Yes. Yes, we do. So um, let's
0: start with a timeline check, won't we? This is now, yeah. um, going just past this, um, Oh, well, first we get that little bit just to remind us that the dwarves went seldom to the Falas for they hated the sound of the sea. Yes, you know, did, we I
1: think, kind of touched on this, didn't we? Is this uh, the fact that because they loved Aule and not Ulmo? I think so. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's a one of those long term effects of Aule hiding his work of making mm, the dwarves from the other Valar that's that a good they point. only they only love his domain. They only love stone. Yeah, um, so they don't love Ulmo's domain. They, you know, they we don't love Yavanna's domain. We know they don't much. love Yvonne's domain. Um, yeah, I think that's, that's what this has, uh, that's a good point. has a lot to do with, with. the consequences of LA's action. You're mm-hmm. right.
0: It's an excellent point. So they, you know, it wasn't that they didn't go to the Falas because it was just too far out of the way. They no. didn't go there because they hated the sound of the no sea. No interest in going to it. the sea. Yep. So they liked water about as much as Sam did, I think.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly.
0: Um, yeah. Well, let's see. Like, so we have get uh, the arrival of you. The next paragraph tells us that the third age of the captivity of Melkor drew on. Mm-hmm. So now we're getting, you know, up to, you know, 40, oh, not quite to 4,900. So Luthien's okay. getting really old to be living at home. But, uh, you know, she's
1: still there. <laughs> still on her parents' insurance and everything. <laughs> if you, if you, I'm not going anywhere with that. I'm just going to leave that alone. <laughs> um <clears throat> The dwarves tell them that there
0: are fell beasts in the land east of the mountains, and your ancient kindred that dwell there are flying from the plains to the hills. Yeah. Uh, By the way, flying here is is metaphorical. It means they're running. I just want to point that out, that not every time wings or flying are mentioned does it actually mean things have wings or are flying. Balrogs. Yeah, something like that. Anyway, (laughs) read Tom's essay. You'll get get it. You'll understand and you'll you'll finally get it. I
1: think you'll finally agree. Um, I think it's I think it's interesting that it's the you know the dwarves who uh who yeah. hear about this. Uh you know, because of course the dwarves are are to the east. Well and they're
0: they're traders. They clearly oh, work, That's a good point. You know, they're 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 connected, you know. That's uh they're the the, the grease of this economy. Um so I'm sure that probably had something to do with it. And they they they, the, they were the able Greece? to get that message. The grease. The you know, like, like amongst the wheels. Okay, I wasn't sure if you meant
1: like the lubricant or like the the ancient culture. Oh, well, yeah, I guess it could have been that too. I was thinking of the the
0: lubricant, but uh, (laughs) it's gotten to the point where I have to spell now. I have to spell my words just to make sure you get context. Um, Right, exactly. Yeah, Greece, as in Greece is the word, the word.
1: Oh, uh, man, that's awesome. I love that. (laughs) Well done, well done.
0: Oh, man. that Yeah, it's late. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, um, fell beasts. That- now, these are not the same fell beasts that we see later on. It just It's a fell beast. It's a beast that's a, a cruel beast, right?
1: Right. Fell fel as in cruel or terrible as in like one fell swoop. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's just yeah. a generic adjective. It's not – Yeah. Yeah, okay. I'm glad I'm glad you brought that up because um, you know, anybody who's familiar with the familiar with the movies might know that they they actually sold action figures of the of the the Nazgûl steeds under the yeah, name Fell Fel beast. beast. And it kind of makes you get Probably because, the,
0: because nobody at the company could spell Dwimmer Dwimmerlake. <laughs> <Yeah>, could be. <laughs> It'd be. Foul
1: Dwimmer Lake. Just didn't Foul pass Wimmer the Lake. focus groups. No Fell Beast did. Fell beast worked. <laughs> um But uh, but yeah, it's worth pointing out that Tolkien he, that's not that isn't a fell beast capital F, capital B. Tolkien no. uses this term fell beasts a lot of times throughout the legendarium. Um he uses it actually of werewolves later on. That's true in uh Baron and Luthien. Uh, Baron and Luthien, yeah. That's a good point. So uh yeah, I'm glad you brought that because okay. it's it's one of my one of my little pet peeves is referring to the Nazgul <laughs> oh, the fell beasts.
0: Well, and you know, when we talk about fell beasts being werewolves, I just want to kind of leave a little hint that, you know, we'd, we'd see on this it says wolves there were, uh, or, or creatures that walked in wolf shape. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll talk more about that later. I'm just going to kind of leave that there um, because we're going to get to a point where we're talking about a very mighty werewolf and also a very mighty wolf.
1: Oh, yeah. Um, yeah.
0: Yeah. Sauron and Karcharoth. Mm -hmm. Um, But uh, that story is later. And I think at that point we'll start talking about what's the difference between a wolf and a warg and a werewolf and, you know, which ones have, you know, like Maiar-like spirits and what, you know.
1: Oh, that's going to be fun. Yeah. Yeah.
0: It's a really interesting conversation to be had. I I think there was a, a thread on that in one of the groups I was in, I don't know, about a year ago. And it just was, went on and on and on. It was a really fun one. That's cool. As opposed to all the threads yep. that constantly talk about the Silmarillion movies. Make <laughs> you know, I just want to stop. I want them all to stop.
1: Yeah. <laughs> stop. Yeah. I know. I know. It's like there's like one new one every three every days. Other day. yeah.
0: yeah. Oh, I just I hope they make a movie. Of that are you climbing out from the cave you've been in? Because everybody's been posting this over and over again. Anyway. Like we said, they shouldn't, but I'd still be the first to line up. Um, oh, oh, totally. Yeah, no, yeah, I'll, yeah.
1: I'll, I'll talk smack about it all, oh, day, yeah. all day long. All, I'll, the stand whole the, time. I'll,
0: I'll stand on the movie line for eight hours saying, They shouldn't everything. do this. I yep. shouldn't be watching this movie. It's going to be horrible. They can't do it justice. And it's then I'd be terrible, the first one to. But I watch will it.
1: be there on, at a midnight screening on Darn opening right. night. Absolutely. Just to hear Morgan Freeman come out oh, as a Lou <laughs> No. Oh, oh, no, no. <laughs>
0: Though I guess that's better than, like, Mike Myers. Uh, yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> Just imagine Morgan Freeman coming no, out. Oh, I
0: don't want to imagine any voice. I don't. I will now
1: that ye, <laughs> ye make before me a great music. <laughs> oh, man. All right, let's go back to the text. I will now that ye make a great music. Oh, my God, you did the Ungoliant voice.
0: You asked me to pull it when you didn't expect it. Thank
1: you, thank you, thank you. Oh, you, you made my day.
0: Thank you, Alan. You are welcome. Let's just hope you're not the only one whose day I made.
1: That was good stuff. Um, Starring Ungoliant as inner guitar. (laughs) In her her understudy role. In a surprise casting choice. (laughs) Uh, You know,
0: I only resorted to that because I just can't do Morgan Freeman.
1: Oh, yeah. there you go.
0: well, yeah. And the voices I can okay. do. I mean, I couldn't think of any others that would work. I mean, you know, Mr. Burns as Iluvatar. Hey, I will now that you make a great music. <laughs> excellent. Excellent. It's an excellent music. Release the hounds. <laughs> um, <yeah. laughs> anyway, oh, All this right. is going to go really far afield. Far yes, yes. Let's quickly. go back to the Silmarillion. Um, you, you've got a note here that I just want you to explain. The compass points of doom.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah, the compass points of doom. Um, just an interesting little tidbit. Uh, we hear about the, the. where is this, that the, uh, you know, the problems coming in from the east. Right, well, um, first, they hadn't uh, rooted out utterly the evils of the north. Oh, the, right, And right, the right, land right. east of the mountains are the fell beasts. Thank you for finding it, yeah. i am still got Morgan Freeman in my mind. Um, yeah. Get out, uh, Morgan, get out. You don't belong there. <laughs> uh, just, a, just a neat little thing. In Tolkien's work, uh East is always bad, and north is almost always bad. Interesting. Uh, You're right. Well, uh, and even
0: in Lord of the Rings, even south becomes kind of bad, doesn't it?
1: It's pretty oh, much that's just true. the, west. Yeah, the Har- you Oh, that's true. Yeah, when you get the Haradrim and everything coming yeah. from the south. That's true. Yeah. Um, that's a good point. But I always think of uh, it's the uh, the funeral dirge that Aragorn oh, and Legolas sing for Boromir. One of my favorite musical yeah. moments. Yeah, oh, oh. it is. It is a great moment. In, uh it's two towers, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and uh, uh
0: yes yes oh, and they
1: uh, they sing a verse about the north wind they sing a verse about the south wind they sing a verse about the west wind and then i think it's gimli who says well you left the east wind to me but i, I uh, don't have the heart to the
0: say au- yeah speak not yeah. of the east
1: wind right aragorn says like no we don't want to speak about the east wind yeah nothing good ever comes from the east east is always no. the direction of uh of, of sort of uh darkness i yeah. would say and yeah. evil Um, And you're right. By the third age, certainly north and south. Well, here north is too because they're so far north that there's nothing north of them except, you know, frozen waste.
0: Exactly. Just the frontier. That's true. Right. But then later on. We don't get north. Once we're further south in the story, like say Gondor, the north isn't a bad thing anymore. Now it's the south. Right. Um, Interesting. Very interesting. But certainly the east is always bad. You're right. Yeah. Uh, And depending on where you are, north is bad or, or south is bad. Yeah. And West is always
1: good. West West always is always good. the direction of of uh, of enlightenment. Well, I mean, yeah. obviously, because Amon's there. That's where
0: Amon is. That's where Tolerase yeah. is, yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um Well, let's see. I you know, I took a little bit of that line there about the wolves, but I wanted you to read that paragraph because there's a couple things in there I wanted to to talk about. Uh, and ere long the evil creatures, that one. I think you Okay, got that is that right. one mine? Yeah. I think so.
1: Okay. And ere long the evil creatures came even to Beleriand over passes in the mountains, or up from the south through the dark forests. Wolves there were, or creatures that walked in wolf shapes, and other fell beings of shadow. And among them were the orcs, who afterwards wrought ruin in Beleriand, but they were yet few and wary, and did but smell out the ways of the land, awaiting the return of their lord. Whence they came, or what they were, the elves knew not then, thinking them perhaps to be Avari, who had become evil and savage in the wild in which they guessed all too near, it is said. Yeah, that. That's what I wanted to get to. Boy, that, <laughs> you know, what we
0: learned about with the Avari being captured uh, way back, mm-hmm. uh, you know, when they were first, uh, when they first awoke uh, by Lake Cui Viennin, mm-hmm. uh, and the hunter would come, you know, yeah. and, and get them. And that's why they were afraid of Orime because they thought it was him. And, and we know, we know that uh, in one of the most horrible things that, that Melkor could have done, uh, he took them and twisted them into the into the orcs. To the orcs, yeah. Just one of the most evil things that's that's been done
1: uh, in the entire in the entire yeah. story so far. It's interesting to think that they could actually just guess it. They could sense it. Yeah. You know, I mean, yeah. I, I, probably you could you could sense that this is a a twisted you know uh, bred you know creature bred from something like you. You you would feel that um, that, that similarity. Yeah. That, that similarity, but also that revulsion. Yeah. Ooh. It's chilling. Sort of like the Reavers. Oh, uh Firefly. Yeah, from Firefly, yeah. So I had to get yeah, all those right. all those cool references in. Yeah. <laughs> You're always there with the quick with the good
0: references. I love that. Man, boy, that well those the Firefly was like one of my favorite shows ever. Oh so. that's was an awesome show. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I realized who, who actually. Who doesn't love
1: that show? Seriously, if you've not watched it. Sure, that, we're, we're gonna get mail from somebody who doesn't love it, but come on, really okay. yeah, it really I mean how do you – it's yeah. – There's only 14 episodes. You can watch them all in like a weekend.
0: Pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. You should be able to watch an entire – the all of the entire, the entire story series. In one weekend and the movie.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, yeah. I, I, I realize now that I actually – I think I had us reading opposite passages, but that's – I'll just take the next one that I had marked as yours. But I okay, really like fine. that. That passage needed to be read. Um, that was really chilling, the whole idea that they were able to kind of like you said – recognize and be revulsed Mm -hmm. by that, uh, that similarity. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But um, we want to talk a little bit about, you know, what happens next. So, so Thingol uh, decides he needs to get himself some, uh, some weapons. Some weapons. Yeah. Uh, So he talks uh, to the Nogrim and they, they make him some. And why are they good at that? Well, Mm -hmm. um, a warlike race of old were all the Nogrim, and they would fight fiercely against whomsoever aggrieved them. They're looking for a fight anywhere they can find one. (laughs) Servants of Melkor, or Eldar, or Avari, or wild beasts, or not seldom their own kin, dwarves of other mansions and lordships. Their smithcraft, indeed, the Sindar soon learned of them. Yet, in the tempering of steel alone, of all crafts, the dwarves were never outmatched even by the Noldor. And in the making of mail of linked rings, which was first contrived by the smiths of Belagost, their work had no rival. Wow! So
1: even yeah. the Noldor, even the never Noldor. weren't the the, the steelsmiths that they were. That's amazing. It, it really is. Um, and but I noticed you you pointed out something else too. Right before that, I saw something about Telkar. I Telkar it, the Smith. Yeah, I'd forgotten anybody, about this. Do you remember uh, anybody remember this name? It's it's actually mentioned in Lord of the Rings. There's a passage. Uh, this is uh, Book Three, Chapter Six, I believe. Aragorn says, "In this Elvish sheath dwells the blade that was broken and has been made again." Telkar first wrought it in the deeps of time. Death shall come to any man that draws Alendil's sword, save Alendil's heir. That's so cool. So that's obviously, you know, Narsil Telkar. and Daryl right. uh, was wrought by Telkar. Yeah. Wow. So it is it is Aragorn's sword is made, this old. It was made now. Yeah, pretty much would
0: have to have been because yeah. dwarves are not immortal. I mean, well, but they can right. live several hundred years. So Telkar it, could... It, it could have been, yeah, sure. But certainly but wait, in this... Actually, I just realized, looking at the text, that doesn't necessarily follow. Listen to this. It's, it, it just says that um, none among them surpassed the craftsmen of Nagrod, of whom Telkar the smith was greatest in renown. So that could have come down. In other words, it's—you don't know any of the uh, Oh, you, you know about the Nagrod, because Telkar
1: was, was one of them. That's a good point. Maybe he wasn't—we'll have to look that up and see if yeah. Telkar actually was in the first stage or later. That's it, a good But it would point.
0: have had—actually, I guess it would have had to have been before— uh, the drowning of Beleriand, certainly. Um, because I don't well, think... no,
1: because Nogrod I think is still around by the Third Age, because the area right. is still there. Yeah, because the east side of the Ered Luin is still. Yeah.
0: Yeah, you're right. Interesting. I don't know. I we'll have to find a timeline on Telkar, but
1: it, we'll it, have to look that up. I don't yeah. think the
0: text is conclusive to say
1: that uh, Telkar lived at that time. Um, yeah. But probably much. it's. I, I I gotta think it was some point in the First Age because yeah. Yeah we, again remember that Aragorn has Cinder heritage true. through Lúthien. Through yeah. Um and it, it seems unlikely that uh Numenorians would have gotten a hold of a blade from Telcar through another means. That's true. I think you're probably so right. So probably sometime in the First Age but maybe not just yet. Yeah
0: well it won't be much later that they'd be i mean <laughs> uh, there's going to come a time where the dwarves aren't going to be crafting anything for the descendants of Luthia. <laughs>
1: no not uh, at <laughs> all so right. you're right exactly it, so it it's not to come up sometime
0: soon or it wouldn't happen at all you're right um interesting we'll have to kind of hash some of that out
1: yeah
0: well now why do we bring all this up um you know i think it's it's interesting we we look at the struggles of the sindar these are very real they're very grounded kind of down to earth um mm-hmm understandable struggles. These are struggles for survival. They're fighting oh, yeah. monsters, they're or fighting orcs, and... werewolves. The yeah. Noldor are fighting each other and the Teled. Yes. And yes.
1: They're, they're,
0: this isn't... They're, they're not, fighting for
1: pride. The yeah, that's exactly for like, right. The yeah, Sindar are fighting for their for like, lives. Right, exactly. Um,
0: yeah. Anyway, I just thought that was interesting and I, I know you did too um, because this kinda, is all happening at the same time.
1: Right. Uh, yeah. Well, not
0: not quite yet because Melkor's still not unchanged. Oh, that's true, so Melkor's the Noldor, not yet. Yeah, the Noldor aren't quite at each other's necks yet. Yeah, um, but they will be soon enough. Um, anyway, it's interesting. It's um, very cool. Yeah, yeah. So let's see. So we get, um, well, we get the arrival of the Nandor. Yeah. Um, I'm gonna go ahead and read this paragraph. It looks like I've got um, uh, little is known. So a little. There's a there's a break here, and then now as has been told, uh, the next sentence to the end of the paragraph. Little is known of the wanderings of the Nandor, whom he led, he being uh, Lenway of the Host of Olway, led away down Anduin. Some, it is said, dwelt age long in the woods of the Vale of the Great River, that would be Anduin. Some came at last to its mouths and there dwelt by the sea. And yet others, passing by Arid Nimris, the White Mountains, came north again and entered the wilderness of Eriador between Arid Luwen and the Far Mountains of Mist. Now these were a woodland people and had no weapons of steel. Maybe they were armed with slender bows, I don't know. (laughs) Probably. And the coming of the fell beasts of the north filled them with great fear, as the Naugrim declared to King Thingol and (laughs) Menegroth. Therefore Denethor, the son of Linwe, hearing rumor of the might of Thingol and his majesty, and of the peace of his realm, gathered such host of his scattered people as he could, and led them over the mountains into Beleriand. There they were welcomed by Thingol, as kin long lost at return, And they dwelt in Osirian, the land of seven rivers. So um, geography, a lot of this is actually off the map, but most of you can recall the Anduin from uh, Lord of the Rings Rings map. So the Vale of the Great River, they would have eventually gotten to its mouths. That would be uh, down by, what, Lasarnak uh, in South Gondor. Right, right. Um, And then eventually they... uh, passed by the White Mountains, uh, those would be the ones that run east-west um, north of Gondor that separate Gondor and Rohan, if I'm not mistaken.
1: Uh, I don't know that they separate them. They run sort of along the, the path between them. Yeah, that's so true. Because Edoras is uh, is on like a northern spur of the Arid Nimris, yeah. and then uh, Mindalwan, which is where Min- Minas Tirith is, is uh, what, the eastern edge. Yeah, but Gondor is to the south <laughs> of the Arid Nimris. Oh, that's a, well, that's north. a good point. Yeah, that's true. Minas Tirith is right there. But yeah, yeah. You're, you're right. Yeah, the mountains, I guess, would technically be a separation, wouldn't they? For the most part, but
0: yeah. yeah. Um, so they would pass over those uh, and then come over into Eriador uh, between Ered and the Misty Mountains. So that would be um, – well, let's see. That would be in those wide lands like Eregion and um, Enidwyth and Dunland <laughs> and all that area. Right. So, um they were a woodland people, so they didn't have, you know, a lot of weapons. These weren't uh, you know, city dwellers with uh, you know, smiths and all of that.
1: No, didn't um, forge weapons or anything like that. No, they were very, you know, hippie like, living with the trees. Yeah. Um And and you're probably right, they probably would have used bows or something that they could yeah. have hunted with. Yeah.
0: So they obviously were mismatched with the fell beasts so they Oh yes. They come over the mountains. So now we can look at our map. They came over the Arid Luan, um and you know, would have spoken to Thingol, and he gave them the land of Osirian. That's in the far southeast of the map. Uh, it's where all those tributaries to the Gellion are that come out from the southern half of uh, of the Erdluin.
1: And that means the land of seven rivers, and you can clearly see the seven rivers right there on the map. There's the Gellian, and then the six tributaries off to it. Yeah. Yeah,
0: yeah. because if you're looking for seven tributaries, you're not going to find them.
1: Right, right. The seventh would <laughs> be the <Gelian.
0: laughs> Um So let's see. Um, Denethor. This is no relation?
1: (laughs) (laughs) No no relation. Oh, man.
0: Yeah. um, This is a very different guy.
1: Unconveniently reusing names, yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah, well, you know, we get, um, well, he uses, renames, human names a lot. People are. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's true. Many, many times the second or the third um, example of these names. So these were
1: the LaQuendi. The Lai Quendi, yep, the green elves.
0: Yes. Uh, they're. Let's see. So they're when, where they fit in the scheme of elves, they were not of the Avari. They were of the Eldar.
1: Right. But because they, they left did. The, right. They started on the march. But they left a but whole But they left early, early, early. Yeah. Maybe. They left basically at the Anduin. That's that's
0: where they stopped. You're right. Yeah, before they got to the Misty Mountains, mm-hmm. uh, before they crossed the Anduin. So they ended the journey much much earlier than anybody else. Mm-hmm. Um,
1: now they these are related to um, to most of the peoples of Mirkwood and yep. Lothlorien. Yeah. So Mirkwood and Lothlorien, although they're ruled by Sindarin elves, uh, Thranduil and and um, well, Celeborn, Celeborn and I Galadriel, guess, yeah, because yeah, Galadriel's. Noldo, but right. Um, but yeah, but they're they're ruled by uh, I guess high elves. Um, but most of the people of Mirkwood and La would have been Nandor. Um, yeah. But uh, the the green elves, the Lyquendi, are other Nandor who left their cousins probably in those places. True. True. Okay. Well,
0: we've got that, and then mm-hmm. I wanted you got a little bit of uh, word nerd good stuff coming up. Oh yeah. Oh, so yeah.
1: Uh, why don't you read that passage first, then we can talk about it. Okay. So this is in the next paragraph, the second sentence. In those days, it is said, Dairon the Minstrel, chief lore master of the kingdom of Thingol, devised his runes, and the Naugrim that came to Thingol learned them and were well pleased with the device, esteeming Dairon's skill higher than did the Sindar his own people. By the Naugrim, the Kirth were taken east over the mountains and passed into the knowledge of many peoples. But they were little used by the Sindar for the keeping of records, until the days of the war, Mm. and much that was held in memory perished in the ruins of Doriath. But of bliss and glad life there is little to be said before it ends, as works fair and wonderful, while still they endure for eyes to see, are their own record, and only when they are in peril or broken forever do they pass into song. Wow just wow oh yeah that's a uh, that's a beautiful sentiment at the Isn't end it? i i mainly wanted that passage for the Keith stuff which i'll yeah, get into but i just but love that that passage. that passage at the end i mean it's wow bitters- i mean it's so true it is yeah. absolutely true we
0: i mean even now you know and here we are um you know we've got young families our kids are growing we there's only when things are different only when things are in peril do you start to look at at what is, you know, do yeah. you start to value your past and your history? Yeah. I don't take enough pictures. I don't take enough video. I don't write enough things down. And it's because, you know, well, it's because I'm busy, but it's because, you know, yeah. works. It's because we're in bliss and glad life. And so we just kind of don't think about that. You're stuff.
1: just enjoying it. And you don't think about, you know, stopping to we're remember it for posterity. You're yeah, right. yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: But, um, yeah, you can see the beauty still around you, so you don't really think about what to say. And then uh, they, they only get into song or, you know, history um, when they're in danger of, uh, of being destroyed or when they're actually destroyed.
1: Yeah. And that's a yeah. sad
0: thing. That's a, a real unfortunate thing. Yeah. But I don't. we can't really spend much time there other than just to say that. And I know you've
1: got some stuff to say about the Keirth. Yeah, I just want to spend a little time on the Keirth just because— um they are one of the scripts that you see a lot in lord of the rings uh if you've if you remember the uh Balan's tomb uh yep. from moria uh that's got the runes on it and that's those are actually uh the Kirth. in fact uh gandalf says in that part these are the runes of diron uh, or these are the, diron's runes something like that <laughs> um so so we get here that they were devised by diron they were devised by a sindarin elf uh which means that they're not related to the scripts that we talked about in earlier chapters, which are um, the Serati of Rúmil or the uh, the Tengwar of Feanor. Um, so they're developed completely independently. Right. Um, interestingly, they do have some features in common with the Tengwar, uh, one of which uh, I'm going to go really word nerd on you here um, and say they're uh, they're featural scripts. So uh, mm-hmm. a featural script is one where the shape of the letter tells you something about how it's pronounced. Hmm. So uh let's take oh, okay yeah let's take for yeah, example exactly. uh let's let's look at the kerth, the kirth since we're talking about those uh if you look at the the kirth for p it kind of looks like a p um it's it looks like an angular p it's just right. a, a straight line with a you know a little uh triangle off right. the side of it um if you add a stroke then that changes the p sound into a b sound that's called adding voice right. in linguistics uh or if you reverse the p that changes the P sound to an F sound, which is called uh, making it aspirant or a fricative. Um, and so it's just it, that that's true of all or, or most of the consonants.
0: Tulka <laughs> am,
1: am I losing you a little bit? <laughs> <laughs> it's all in Appendix E, actually. OK, Wow. Um, but really, it's just the the shape yeah. of the letter defines the sound, which is that's different. That's pretty cool. That's, it's that's... different from our different from our le- alphabet, where yeah. there's you know there's no uh, yeah. there's no relationship between you know the the shape of a, uh, a shape of a P and the shape of an R. You know, they just yeah, kind of right. look similar, but there's there's no common sound there. None at all. Uh, but the but Kirith actually the the way they look actually helps define how they sound, and tengwar are the same. Yeah. So it's just neat because. Uh, they're just they're very logical scripts. Um, yeah. they're they're intentionally designed to be easy to read. Um, so so maybe cipher. Yeah, you're right. Maybe they're not always to, to some people. <laughs> but uh, but I, I found them easy to learn. Uh, yeah. when I when I learned them, just because because they were so logical. That makes um, sense. And as a as a letter nerd, that's uh, that's kind of cool to me. That is very cool.
0: Well, you know, I I, I find it interesting that the dwarves like them more than the elves did, and I'm almost thinking that's aesthetic. Uh, you know, that they don't they just are very um, well, they're all straight lines, and you know, it's not it's not elvish, it's not you know, it's beautiful, it's kind of like the dwarvish yeah. language. I mean, it's um,
1: but something you could carve into metal. Well, you and know? that's the thing, I mean, and that's why like, you
0: can't carve or chisel into stone, chisel into stone, you, yeah. You couldn't chisel, the, you know, the Tengwar into stone, yeah,
1: these round, these beautiful rounded
0: bows. Could, and well, I mean, like I guess that. you could, but it would take for it would take
1: a very long time, yeah, uh, you know. <laughs>
0: What have you been doing the last 3 years while well, I'm writing a letter and I'm at hello? <laughs> dwarves don't have time for that. They got no. They got, got people to we fight, got weapons to make and yeah. yeah. Um but yeah, anyway, I just thought that was interesting that it does seem to be some sort of a, an aesthetic reason why the elves really don't prefer it but the dwarves certainly do. Yeah. So I was wondering I it made me think of the um the runes on the map in the Hobbit, but I don't mm. think those are Keirth, are they?
1: No, they are not actually. Okay, uh, I
0: wasn't sure because I remember trying to take the appendix
1: and, and trying translate for them,
0: and it didn't work. It was like yeah. saying about bi Ovaltine or something.
1: <laughs> uh. No, yep, yeah, that's. Uh. wow. <laughs> Sorry. Well, you got you got some some interesting secret messages there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah um, those anymore. are not the cure. Um, no, actually, no. An interesting question. Those are. Um, those are based on actual Anglo-Saxon runes, which are oh, called the okay. Futhork. The Futhork, uh, okay. Futhork, yeah, which is the just the names of the the first six letters. Um, or it's just yeah, you know, it's like an acronym from the first six letters. Oh, okay. Um, of the alphabet. Uh, I think the reason Tolkien used uh, the Anglo-Saxon runes mm-hmm. for thrower's map is probably well, probably first of all because he he wasn't quite sure the Hobbit was True. going to fit into his into his legendarium just yet. No. Um, but also, um, you know, remember, we talked about the dwarves uh, not sharing their language with others um, and, ah. uh, and, and the fact that Thror's people were uh, were in diaspora. Um, and so, you know, their language that they use, they, you know, they use the Westron language. Their names were all right. in the Westron language. And so right. uh, Tolkien, which is a Manish, Weren- right, Manish language, the, the language that was spoken by people around them. Um, and Tolkien always rendered Westron as English, so I mm-hmm. think that's why he used actual English runes for that. That makes sense. That totally makes sense. Yeah. Well, there's actually a whole appendix on runes in uh, yeah, I think it's in volume seven of History of Middle Earth. Oh, okay. Uh, um, so uh, yeah, if anybody's the Isengard. Got, yeah, yeah. There's a there's an appendix on runes, and it's got okay. some of Tolkien's drawings of different runes. But uh, anyway. Probably nobody's interested in that stuff as much as me. <laughs> I bet you. I bet that's not true. There's probably a few it's, out there.
0: I bet there are a few. Um, but now we get to the noontide of of mm-hmm. Um I'm going to go ahead and read this next paragraph, and then we'll talk about uh, what's going on here. And we'll have to step it up. I just realized we're actually moving along. Pretty quickly here. I mean, not moving along pretty quickly. We pretty probably slowly. need to move on a little quickly. Yeah. Um, so in Beleriand, in those days, the elves walked, and the rivers flowed, and the stars shone, and the night flowers gave forth their scents, and the beauty of Melian was as the noon, and the beauty of Luthian was as the dawn in spring. In Beleriand, King Thingol upon his throne was as the lords of the Maiar, whose power is at rest whose joy is as an air that they breathe in all their days, Mm. whose thought flows in a tide untroubled from the heights to the deeps. In Valerian still, at times, rode Orome the Great, passing like a wind over the mountains, and the sound of his horn came down the leagues of the starlight, and the elves feared him for the splendor of his countenance and the great noise of the onrush of Nahar. But when the Valaroma echoed in the hills, they knew well that all evil things were fled away.
1: <laughs>
0: Good old Orme. Love that prose. That whole oh, paragraph yeah. is just beautiful. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, I loved I... the stars shown, the night flowers. Mm-hmm. I love that we get this interesting, like, time, right? We get night flowers. Beauty of Melian is as noon.
1: Mm-hmm. But the beauty of
0: Luthien is as dawn and spring.
1: Right. So dawn, and... noon, and night. And you know what that makes me think of this uh, beauty of Lúthien as the dawn and spring. That uh-huh. makes me think of uh the appendix in return of the king that talks about Arwen's death where she's described as being like nightfall and winter uh-huh. that comes without a star. Oh, beautiful. Isn't that cool? It's like and 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 really remember Arwen is the tail it's end the of this yeah, yeah, of this this line that that rose with Lúthien. She's the end, the very end of the well, she's the very well, yeah, yeah, I mean, her' she's son, the last elf, yeah, she's the yeah, wow,
0: wow, beautiful, yeah, and then, hey, you're here, the writing of orame,
1: yeah, yeah, I, I was I was out there hunting bad guys the whole time, Tilkis is busy lifting, I don't know what he's
0: you know he's just uh doing some push ups or something, but Oromay's <laughs> out here, you know, doing the
1: work, yeah, I yeah, love that. And, and the elves are the elves fear him, but I love the fact that they knew well that all evil things were flipped yeah. far away. You know, they know he's taking care of business. Yeah, he's getting a job done. It's pretty cool. Oh, so sorry.
0: My goodness. <laughs> it is getting late. It is. Um, well, let's take a look real quick here at, uh, at a timeline check. We get the very next paragraph, which I'll also cover because it, it gives us some good, um, uh, good geography and gives us um, a transition from this bliss to the end of bliss. Uh, And we'll talk about timelines. So, it came to pass at last that the end of bliss was at hand, and the noontide of Valinor was drawing to its twilight. Or as we've been saying, (laughs) tick-tock, tick-tock. For as has been told, and as is known to all, being written in lore and sung in many songs, Melkor slew the trees of the Valar with the aid of Ungoliant and escaped and came back to Middle-earth. Far to the north befell the strife of Morgoth and Ungoliant, But the great cry of Morgoth echoed through Beleriand, and all its people shrank for fear, for they knew not what it foreboded. They heard then the herald of death. (laughs) Soon afterwards Ungoliant fled from the north and came into the realm of King Thingol, and a terror of darkness was about her. But by the power of Melian she was stayed and entered not into Neldoreth, but abode long time under the shadow of the precipices in which Dorthonion fell southward. And they became known as Ered Gorgoroth, the Mountains of Terror, and none dared go thither or pass nigh them. There life and light were strangled, and there all waters were poisoned. But Morgoth, as has before been told, returned to Angband and built it anew, and above its doors he reared the reeking towers of Thangorodrim, and the gates of Morgoth, were but one hundred and fifty leagues distant from the bridge of Minagroth, far, and yet all too near.
1: Hmm.
0: Wow. wow, there's a lot
1: there. Yeah, um, nice little recap of some of the things we've seen in recent. Yeah, and uh... it
0: and it ties the two timelines together now. Yeah, you know, finally. now we're getting an understanding. And you know, it's interesting if we look back at the map, which we're going to do here. Where was it that he came? That Morgoth came ashore the Lammoth. That on your map is all the way in the northwest. Yeah. So look to the west of Doriath, and then go north, and you can see the Lamoth up there above Neverast, to the west of Hithlum and the west of Dorloman. So and somewhere
1: up there, off to the, off the screen, would be the Helcodoxe and all that yeah, stuff. Yeah, up they came even down further there. off the northwest. Yep. So yep.
0: so he gets ashore on Lamoth, and that's where that fight took place with Ungoliant, mm-hmm. and his scream echoed through Beleriand. Mm. That is. Massive. from that space that's a from huge from that huge scream. yeah his scream could be heard all the way through Beleriand so amazing hundreds of miles as we'll get to when yeah. we can talk a little bit about scale in a bit yeah. um amazing
1: uh-huh
0: so uh she gets uh she gets into the the land of Ered Gorgoroth there the just north of dan of uh, the forest of Neldorath is Nendon which is the valley between Ered Gorgoroth and the forest and that's the place you don't want to be. Right. That. Well, that I talk area. about a place that
1: sounds like what it, an arid gorgoroth. arid gorgoroth. I mean that's just a that's just a ugly scary word. It really is the Gorgoroth, the mountains of terror, arid Gorgoroth.
0: Well, yeah. I mean, what other words do we have that sound like that? We have a few. Um I'm trying to think of others that have that G O R that sort of um mountains I think of terror. Is, isn't there
1: a Kirith Gorgor somewhere in Mordor?
0: I think there is. like a pass, The passive terror. The passive, yeah, yeah. I think so. I know that there's other stuff. I'll have to look that up. But yeah. I thought that was interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, I, here's a little line that I like, or, well, I don't like, but it's an interesting line. <laughs> Their life and light were strangled. Mm. Well, of course they were. That's what Ungoliant does. That's what Ungoliant does, yeah. She sucks up light. She eats the light.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So it was a horribly dark place. Um so now we, get, uh, now we can combine the two timelines and say, oh, this happened at X. Mm-hmm. So Morgoth's cry in the Lamoth was 95 Valinorian years after his release, which is about 930 years after he'd been freed. So um, at this point, Luthien has, is a little over 2,900 years old. So okay. when we said this is a long chapter, it's a 3,000-year-long <laughs> chapter.
1: There you go. <laughs> um,
0: but that gives us a timeline, and now we can combine the two. And we're about to see that happen even more uh, with the next chapter and after mm-hmm. that, of course, they're all merged anyway. Um, so, yeah, just amazing stuff. We um, w- wanted to talk a little bit about distance. Um,
1: yeah, because we see that that Fangoradrim yeah. uh, is 150 leagues from uh, from Menegroth. Yeah, now that's not, on, that's
0: not on your map here. Uh, it's going to be north of Anfauglith. Right. It's going to be just off your map, really, uh, not too yeah. far off your map. But 150 leagues. Now you know you might get the question: Well, what is a league? Uh, a league is approximately three miles. Right. So when we hear about 150 leagues, you're talking about 450 miles.
1: 450 miles. So it's not it's not next door.
0: No. And you've got a mountain. Well, not a mountain range. You've got basically a, a mountain range and a plain, or, yeah. or a plateau, and then another mountain range between right. you. Right. yeah. Um, unless they go through the pass uh, through the pass to the west. Um, uh, over Syrian, or if they come through eventually around the east
1: uh, through what would eventually become known as the March of Mithros uh, in a couple right. chapters. So, right. I mean, this know, is a distance that, you know, one could drive or take a train in a day, but they didn't have cars. No, no. So, um, uh, but... oh, for those of
0: us not in using the imperial system, that's a little over 700 kilometers. Oh, thank you. So, not that I I'm... I would never. If you told me 700 kilometers, I would say I can walk that tomorrow. I don't know how long that is, <laughs> it's, it's or like maybe right it takes me a street. week to drive. I don't know. I have no I, idea. How we have no idea. 700 yeah. kilometers. Yeah, I don't know.
1: Um, so, if, I, I, yeah, go ahead. I did some. I did some Google Maps on oh, this. Oh, I was about to ask about that. And I'm my, <laughs> I, I came up with a, with a few actually. Um, not sure we have time for all of them here, but uh, my favorite one that I came up with was. Uh, for our U.K. listeners and for Tolkien, which I think is probably most, uh, most telling, uh, 460 miles, I think, is the distance from Brighton, which is on the southern coast of England, uh, to Edinburgh, which is mm. in, in southern Scotland. So just right over uh, the border into, into Scotland. So uh, Morgoth is about an England away. From Menegroth. Okay, that gives so me a good, the, pretty good scale. About, about the distance of England, which is not um, huge.
0: It's a lot no, closer than
1: I'd want to. No, be, it's not you know, huge. To, it's about maybe now. a you know maybe a, again like a five or six hour train trip you know something like yeah, that. Yeah, I think. Um, so uh, yeah, it's not it's not that far. No, but it's also not next door either.
0: No, no. But anyway,
1: interesting stuff. Uh,
0: let's see. So we've talked about uh, Melian's power. Interestingly, because we she hasn't exercised it all yet. Uh, but she was able to keep uh, Ungoliant out, which is good. Um, we'll see, you know, that, that how, how long-lasting that is. We'll see. Um, but then we get to the first battle of the Wars of Beleriand. Uh, we're going to try to power through this fairly quickly. But, Sean, I want you to read that. Um, now the orcs that multiplied um, yep. to uh, in the Wars of
1: Beleriand. Yeah. Now the orcs that multiplied and the darkness of the earth grew strong and fell. And their dark lord filled them with a lust of ruin and death there's his spirit being spent there's his spirit being spent there you go and they issued from angban's gates under the clouds that morgoth sent forth and passed silently into the highlands of the north thence on a sudden a great army came into valerian's and assailed king thingal now in his wide realm many elves wandered free in the wild or dwelt at peace in small kindreds far sundered and only about menegroth in the midst of the land and along the Falas and the country of the mariners were their numerous peoples. But the orcs came down upon either side of Menegroth, and from camps in the east between Caelan and Gelion, and west in the plains between Sirion and Narog, they plundered far and wide, and Thingol was cut off from Cirdan at Eglarest. Therefore he called upon Denethor, and the elves came in force from Region beyond Aros and from Assyriand, and fought the first battle in the wars of Beleriand. My goodness.
0: Well, so you would have to look at the map for that and see. Yeah. Indeed, they did do what we just talked about. They came, uh, you know, in a pincher move uh, from— Just swept
1: around Midoriath on both sides, didn't yeah, they? Yeah,
0: yeah. Uh, I had to really kind of figure out what they meant by the plains between Syria and Narog. Nor- and but if you're looking at the map, that's uh, to the west of Doriath. You see Ruth And then you see a, an area called the Talath-Dirnan. That looks right. like that would be what, they're, what he's referencing there. I think so, yeah. Um, to— you know, somewhere south of Dor-Loman, um, but, mm. but west of Doriath. So they come from there, which means, of course, they must have come through the path uh, the pass of the Syrian. Right. Um, I guess they could have come through Dor-Loman. I don't know. It seems a little too many mountain ranges to go through from, from uh, uh, Thangor. Yeah, probably so, yeah. Uh, and then they would have come around through um, that area where the Kelon and the Galeon uh, stem from up in the mountains in the um, mm-hmm. northeast in Himalayan. Oh, the northeast, Yep. So, yeah, um, so there's that. And then, you know, they get victory. uh, Just to to sum up, they get victory, but it was dear bot. The elves of Osirian were were absolutely no match for the orcs. Uh, The orcs have iron, um, you know, iron armor, iron shielded, have big spears. Yeah. Uh, And, of course, the elves of Osirian, as we know, were armed with... Lightly armed. Lightly armed. I mean, again, we might just say slender bows. Uh, and compare them to the uh, the Teleri in that regard. Yeah,
1: it's a it's a slaughter. It's, it's it had a total to be a slaughter.
0: slaughter. Uh, Denethor cut off. Uh, he fell. Uh, most of his kin, but Thingol does come to his aid and avenges the death. Um, but they they took no king ever again. Uh, mm-hmm. The the Elves of Assyrian really you know took this deeply, took this loss uh, really hard, uh, and so they actually kind of became. This like stealth, these stealth specialists, they, uh, <laughs> they didn't come out in open war anymore. They, uh, they were, you know, hiding and they kept themselves by wariness
1: and secrecy. Um, kind of feels to me like the first Rangers. Yeah. Yeah, maybe. I mean, I know we think of Rangers as being, you know, uh, Numenorians, but, you know, maybe like the, the sort of the first Elven, if you think of like a, you know, a and a d Ranger or something right, like that. Right, The it's classic, kind of, the classic
0: archetype. Yeah. Yeah. Because, you know, I would always roll a half Elven Ranger. But, you know, the Elven Oh, yeah, are, me too. Of course. Rangers.
1: What else are you going to do? A half Elven Ranger? No, are
0: you kidding me? I was always a Paladin. Let's well, just, i was always a Paladin. I always had to play ha- lawful good. Halfling but, Thief.
1: Of course. <laughs> you chaotic little creature. It's Bilbo, man. Come on. What? It's Bilbo. <laughs> I was more a grocer than a burglar. <laughs> oh, man.
0: Um,. So, yeah, so they ended up merging with Thingol. So they became part of the Sindar at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, I did think it was interesting to to see elves working together again. Um, yeah. You know, you've got all these different groups of elves, um, you know, working together. Whereas on the other side in, in, um, uh, in Amman, you've got the, uh, you know, the real elves of Orange County, you know, <laughs> being all... Being all dramatic. Seriously, drama queens
1: over here. <laughs> Um, you know, so I just... You'll never believe what Fingolfin said about Finarfin. Seriously. Uh, yeah, exactly. It's, yeah, it's so nice to see elves working together, fighting together. Right. Instead of fighting amongst themselves. And getting slaughtered
0: together. <laughs> slaughtered together. <laughs> um, so let's see. Um, I'll try to just get a little bit of this last bit, uh, the next to last paragraph. Uh, when Thingol came again to Menegroth, he learned that the Orkhost in the West was victorious. So this is over by the Phalas and had driven Kier to the rim of the sea. Uh, I'm just going to sum up the rest. He withdrew his people uh, to uh, to the fastness of Neldoreth and Region, and Melian put forth her power. Here we go. This is the creation of the girdle. Very important.
1: Mm-hmm. She yes.
0: fenced all that dominion round. So if you zoom in, uh, forest of Neldoreth. I'm sorry, Neldoreth, and the forest of Region. So those are the the two portions there, right about where it says Doriath, and right where Mordoroth is. So this does not include the forest of Brethel. It doesn't include any of the areas outside the river Aros, the river Mindeb. Uh, it doesn't include Nan Elmoth over to the east. Uh, it's just right. that one little circle right there. Okay. Um, so that none thereafter could pass against her will or the will of King Thingol unless, and this is important, one should come with a power greater than that of Meli and the Maya. Hmm. And uh, this inner land, which was long named Eglador, was after called Doriath, the guarded kingdom the land of the girdle.
1: There we go.
0: Within it, there was yet a watchful peace. But without, there was peril and great fear. And the servants of Morgoth roamed at will, save in the walled havens of the Phalas. So this, you know, they won, but then they had to retreat. It was a very
1: Pyrrhic victory. Oh, yeah, um, yeah. You know, to, to borrow another they, Greek thing. Um, they survived, basically. You yeah, know, they, they won. They fought back the Orcs, but they're, they're now, uh, they're, they're really not surrounded. quite un, they're not quite under siege but it's close you know I mean yeah. they're, they're really they're surrounded they're on, they're on the defense they really up. are they're definitely uh, playing defense at this point mm-hmm. um, sort of a prototype Lothlorian,
0: really this uh, Doriath isn't it that's true yeah I mean well I, and I, think, I think we I think talked you came up with that but you know I, I, and so I didn't mean to take that from you. but no I, that,
1: I, no that's fine it's I, I think it's, uh, it's I think a little it's pocket. True.
0: It's just a yeah. pocket of, uh, of of safety. Of um, protection, yeah. Well, yeah. and we
1: know that Galadriel ended up learning a lot from Melian later that's on. That's true. That is true. So you probably figure this is where she got the idea.
0: Very good. Well, well um, we've, we've got a little bit of a closing here. I think we yeah, should... Yeah, you want to take this last paragraph? Yeah, I, I do. I think this is, uh, uh, this is an important closure, um, and we'll try to keep this under two hours. But new tidings were at hand, which none in Middle-earth had foreseen, neither Morgoth in his pits nor Melian in Menegroth, for no news came out of Amman, whether by messenger or by spirit or by vision and dream after the death of the trees. In this same time, Feanor came over the sea in the white ships of the Teleri and landed in the Firth of Drengist, and there burned the ships at Lasgar. <laughs> so now the okay. timelines come together, Yeah. Um, and after the trees, there's no more messages uh, even Melian is going to be cut off uh, from, you know, news from Amon, which presumably yeah. she would have been able to have some sort of access to, uh, enough that she could tell the stories of the Valar and the weavings that were hung about And that's true.
1: Yeah, that's a good point. Never um, thought about that.
0: You know, even though she'd been there since before the Eldar had arrived.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: So, yeah, um, it's going to be a time of silence now in that regard. Yeah. But, you know, we know that because we know that... Um, the Valar themselves have fenced themselves in, you know, in an effort to keep the Noldor out. They, um, you know, they're, what did what did, uh, what, what did Mandos say to him? That we will fence oh, you out, that we will yes. fence Valinor against you, not even the echo of your lamentation.
1: That's right. Yeah. So, and, and we'll oh, find out in a,
0: in a couple of chapters that they literally do fence them out, that there becomes, yeah. you know, a, a literal physical barrier, but that's uh, in a couple chapters. Yep. For now, that wraps it up for another episode of the Prancing Pony podcast. And as always, Sean and I thank you very much
1: for joining us. Thank you. Thank you very much. And join us again next time when we go back to Valinor for Chapter 11 of The Sun and Moon and the Hiding of Valinor. Mm-hmm.
0: And then right back to Middle-earth for the brief chapter of uh, of Men when our ancestors will finally come on the scene. But Uh, Next chapter is when the Valar will uh, not only change the locks on the doors, but build a big security fence around the house and post the uh, keep out Noldor signs. (laughs) (laughs) Um, As always, if you need cheap paperbacks to mark up, please use the links on our library page at theprancingponypodcast.com. We also have
1: links to audiobooks, music CDs, and some other cool things for your Tolkien collection. And if you haven't done so already, please subscribe on iTunes or Google Play Music. We'd love it if you iTunes users take a moment to write us a review. You know what? We're let also me on Stitcher. Um, on, tune yeah. In. Oh, yeah. Go ahead.
0: I'm going to jump in on this for a second. We've managed, uh, despite our, our mediocre talent and uh, faces for radio, <laughs> to build a little bit of an audience here. And that's a, been a very pleasant surprise. But I can still count the number of iTunes reviews on two hands. Um, here's the thing the more reviews we get, and, and hopefully we're talking about good reviews, uh, the more we're going to show up when people search for Tolkien related podcasts. Um, I don't know about how that works on other platforms and I know not everybody is an iTunes user, but if you can post reviews, please do, uh, throw us a few gems, hoard them not.
1: <laughs> well said. Thank you, Alan. Good point. <laughs> uh, and thanks to those of you who are visiting us and commenting to us on social media. Uh, we absolutely love the community of listeners and friends we've, we found out there. And if you haven't joined us already, please do. Remember, this is the Prancing Pony. And uh, just like the common room at the end, we want everybody to join in the conversation. Yep. Um, So social media is how you do it. You can get current updates, listen to previous episodes, and interact directly with Alan and me on Facebook at The Prancing Pony Podcast or on Twitter at Prancing Pony Pod. And, you know, social media
0: is a great place to share our podcast as well. Retweet us, uh, share us on your timeline, whatever it takes. Unless, of course, you prefer us toiling in anonymity. Um, (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> One last thing, as always, don't forget to send your questions, comments, or your summer party tips from Tulkas and Nessa Ooh. to the Prancing Pony Podcast at gmail.com, and we'll try to get them into our next episode. Ah, well, two hours is still far too short a time to spend amongst such admirable listeners, but until next time, farewell, friends.